You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. And I'm Simon. Gentlemen, never let it be said that I refuse to move with the times or to adjust to new memes in the world of blue box podcasting. To prove it, I send you the following trenchantly philosophical communication. Bum, willy, jiggy, jiggy, boobs, poo, flaps, fart, front, bottom, wee, trump, bumhole, titties, bonk, stinky bum. Keep up the good work, Doc Whom. <laughs> A.K.A. Castellan, Spandex and the rest of it. I'm trying not to laugh at that. <clears throat> Dear Blue Boxers. <laughs> Makes me sound childish. <clears throat> it's an RTD script, isn't it? Oi. Dear Blue Boxers, I was a bit confused by your latest podcast as Lee, Simon and Mark all sounded funny. Simon was calling himself Dick Grinder, which is a name I would like to have one day. Mark sounded like Barry Shitpeas from Charlie Brooker's show about wet wipes. Oh, I love Barry I was hoping I was hoping you would have Philomena Kunk on as well, as she is funny and also very pretty. Plus... Plus, she seems a bit dim, which I always feel gives me more of a chance, as she might not realise what I'm doing. JR was worried about talking about rubber, but I don't see why, as rubber is nice and makes nice girls always look hot, like Amy P of the Austin Avengers. Simon said, after you talked about rubber, that it was coming, and he was right. Barry said something like, <clears throat> Barry said something was like going on a day out with the TV. I used to do that by plugging it into a cow's bottom and waving milk bottles at it. <laughs> I took a VCR as well so I could watch Planet of Fire when no one was watching except the cows. I once saw it on a boat and was sad that Perry wasn't there with me in her pink bikini, even though it doesn't really fit me or the cows. I like the word seminal. Simon said he was scared of snakes. I have known several girls who have told me something very similar, and I have since been banned from the zoo and several pet shops because apparently some of the snakes have been scared as well. This was when you talked about snake dance. I can make my snake dance, but this is why I can't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that was good. I can make my snake... I can't say it now. <clears throat> I can make my snake dance, but this is why I can't go to the zoo anymore. <laughs> I liked it when Barry said assholes. <laughs> <laughs> this is like this is like a commentary on every moment of the podcast, isn't it? You don't you didn't even listen to this podcast, Lee, so you don't even know what he's I mean, talking I about. I really want to listen to it now. This was Friends Part One, or Friends as were, as it will be known once I've finished this email. <laughs> When talking about Envision of the Dinosauruses, Lee said that there were so many little things it brought up. I agree, as there is a scene where Sarah is bending right over and it made my little thing go up and my hand got very tired again. I can't believe this. <laughs> God. <clears throat> I'm going to start penciling things out. <clears throat> 
Barry said that Lee was the Adric of podcasting. But I think that is a little unfair, as Lee does not have a badge for mythomaniacal extravagance, although I have heard that he does have yellow and green jimmy jams. Also, <laughs> Lee has, also, Lee has never crashed into the world and wet-wiped the dinosauruses, at least not that I am aware of. I like it that you now start every podcast with my letters. That makes me happy. It seems to make the others happy too. But I hope your listeners don't think it all goes down afterwards. I like going down. And if Philomena Kunk comes to see me, I will ask if she likes it too. Your friend, Sherak Jizz. <clears throat> need a column. <laughs> I, I think his problem is that he spends too much time thinking about his column. Okay. Ian Martin, to bring us back to reality. I say that, Ian Martin, who lives in all sorts of exotic places, he's not going to bring us back to reality, is he? Soon find out. Ian Martin says, It was nice to be transported back to the days of September 2003 in your most recent podcast. At the time, I was checking the internet almost hourly to hear if Guns N' Roses were ever going to release Chinese democracy, and I certainly didn't expect the news that the show was being revived. By that point, the novels, under Steve Cole or Justin Richards, whoever, whoever was in charge by then, had got so utterly dismal that I had long abandoned any new who. And while I agreed in theory with a Peter Davison quote, where he said it would inevitably come back one day, I wasn't really expecting it in my lifetime. Myself and another fan spoke about it often in the following 18 months. Neither of us were going to let ourselves dream it would be a success. We felt it was only returning to be cancelled once again, to hurt us all over again. I literally couldn't visualise the show could return and become a popular smash hit. Who could? Really, though. Who amongst us thought it would be anything other than a loving, respectful version which would flop, be canned, and become a painful reminder of what we'd lost? This is why RTD deserves a bloody medal. And the irony is, when Chinese democracy finally emerged, it was critically panned and no one paid it any attention. A bit like Stone Roses too. <laughs> now we have I New Who. Second cover. <clears throat> That's, like that, That's a yeah. really good album. Well, it didn't do very well. That's no, no point. it didn't. No. Everybody waited bloody years for it to turn out, and then when it did turn out, it was a heavy metal album, and everyone said, what the loving peep. <laughs> probably why I liked it. Now, says Ian, we have New Who, Twin Peaks is returning, The X-Files might come back, and all is right with the world. Oh, I didn't know that. Twin Peaks is coming back? Mm. Mm. Yeah, this has been around for a while. New Stars from the female lead. Brilliant. And not only that, 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 but it's Felicity Jones, isn't it? Yeah. And and to the director you were talking about the other day, wasn't there? Was it the director of Looper? Is doing one of the new Star Wars films. Uh, I don't think I was talking about the director of Looper. Oh, oh no, was it the Kristen Hayden's and oh Jumper? Jumper. Oh, I get those two mixed up. Jumper and Looper. Because <laughs> got an O in the end. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the P. And a P. It's always to mix. <laughs> so it's easy. <laughs> it's always too easy to mix things up when they've got a P. Looper's better. <clears throat> Gerard Gray says, Hello, Blue Box podcast team. I really enjoyed your sci-fi selections podcast. J.R. Lee and Simon, you picked some great films. Thank you. Time after time, an invasion of the body snatchers would be high on my best of list too. Oh, funny enough, they're both my choices. 
<laughs> your friends podcast was a joy to listen to it was great to hear your guests doctor who stories we are now 10 years into new who and i think it's fair to say most of the episodes have been classics i truly believe it is the best show on television it's got the best writers directors and actors and that's only a few of its strengths here's hoping it remains the wonderful show that it is for many years to come cheers guys yeah here here <clears throat> yeah well that's what we're here to talk about tonight <clears throat> But I do a, have... It was a good po- podcast, that Friends one. I enjoyed it. Is it going to be another part, is it? Yeah, that was the first half. There's going to be a second half mm-hmm. probably next week. Mm. Well, definitely next week. I will listen to it probably next year. So. <laughs> I don't think you will. There's a PS from Gerard Gray. And then there's an email from Kieran Hyman, which I've saved because it's from Down Under. <laughs> Are we ready for the accents? I've got to build myself up for that. (laughs) (laughs) They always do this. If they want me to read it in an Australian accent, they start it with G'day. Oh, that's easy. It gets you in it. Exactly. Yeah. But Gerard Gray's got a PS, which is a question for the three of us. Oh, all right. Okay. What do you guys think about the two-part Doctor Who stories coming back? Because, just to expand on that, apart from... Death in Heaven last year. We've not had any two-parters since, well, they're almost people, wasn't it? The Rebel Flesh. Mm. Mm. And now... Oh, this might be a close your ears moment for Lee. Mm, No, I'd leave it if I were you, because you can't answer the question if you don't. Well, the first two production blocks on the new series, Series 9, have both been two-parters. And it looks suspiciously like the entire series might be two-parters. Mm. A real proper change of pace. Mm. Possibly. This isn't... I mean, it, also it's possible that it'll start with two-parters and end with two-parters and have a few single episodes in the middle. Mm. But the way it's shaping up, it looks like it's all going to be two-parters. So what do you think? A real change of pace. This is interesting for me because after listening to your friend's podcast, uh, there was a discussion about the fact... I can't remember which one of your guests it was. I think it was um, Mr. Gribble. Hayden, yeah. Hayden was saying um, about the pacing of the new series is almost too fast, where you can't get good characterization. And strangely, you've got that, and I don't seem to have found that balance with the new series, that when, when we do get two-parters, particularly with Moffat, that they are two individual, almost two individual episodes that just kind of link they're not. They don't actually. They're not yeah. like a single entity. Yeah. Well, and I don't I, think there's been a. In my mind, I don't think there's a two-part story that I would really, possibly, Journey's End, Stolen Earth, maybe yeah, being is. the most uh, complete, as, complete a story. as a two-part story. Yeah, I don't. I can't think of a two-part story I really rate. The trouble with the two-parters is when Russell T. Davis was doing it, because I think. I think the pacing problem's been a lot better since Stephen Moffat did it because I think he puts less plot in Mm. to his 45-minute stories. Mm. So there's more room for character. Mm. Whereas Russell T. Davis used to bung, you know, an old four-parter's worth of plot in and get it all over and done with in 45 minutes. If you look at even some great episodes like The End of the World or Tooth and Claw or whatever, it's like five minutes at the start to tell you what's going on, then just bang, 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 bang. All the way through. Mm. I think Stephen Moffat's done that a lot better. <clears throat> but the two-parters, Russell T. Davis used to used to take an old 25-minute first episode, 
and expand it to 45. Mm. And then he used to take three episodes worth of working the plot through and contract that down to the second 45. Mm. So the first half of almost all of, you know, Aliens of London, uh, Doomsday and Army of Ghosts, um, Impossible Planet and the Satan Pit, all of them have got really long first halves Mm. and then really fast second halves. And that was his problem. <clears throat> and Stephen Moffat, it's not like two single episodes stuck together, but what it is, is that somewhere built into that story, there would be a point where the story moves on to a completely different place. Not always yeah, physically. Yeah. Like not always, Yeah, not yeah. always geographically, but mm. like in the Time of Angels. Yeah. The first half of that story is set in the caves and mm. the second half is set in the spaceship. Yeah, yeah. And then Hungry Earth. First half is set above ground, second half below ground. And even um, Dark Water in Death in Heaven, first half is set inside St. Paul's Cathedral, second half set in the graveyard and outside. So the cliffhanger at the end is almost a game changer, that's where it... The cliffhanger is where it moves. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, no, I get that. I get that. So if it's going to be six, or maybe even seven, because generally it tends to be that us. Well, it works out roughly that if a single 45-minute episode takes two and a half to three weeks to record, whereas a two-parter takes four to five weeks to record. So it's possible that by doing all two-parters, instead of having six two-parters, we might get seven. Mm-hmm. He might squeeze <coughs> an epi- extra episode out of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, not if they're all like that, where part one takes place in one place and part two takes place in another. Because then you're almost making it as two single parts. I was going to say, is there an argument for making the episodes behave that way, in, in that people dip in and out of the um, out of the series, and they're not? You don't necessarily. You don't want to rely on the fact that people are going to be there week after week. Yeah. Well, the thing is, ten years now, and people do stay week after week. So I don't think it's going to make a lot of difference. No, no, in no, that no, no. I don't think so. There's a lot of TV shows on at the moment that have got part ones, part twos coming out, and Paul Dark, you know, same thing. Obviously, that was a load of books first so obviously it's going to be in a sequence but you, you just follow the story through you come back to it and, and if it's a good enough cliffhanger like Stephen Moffat seems to do great cliffhangers anyway you're going to come back to it aren't you uh, the Satan Pit I think was probably the closest inconsistency between two episodes mm. Uh, mm. that we've seen for quite but a again, while but again that Sorry, first episode really bullocks. quite I didn't need to really quite slow that first episode yeah but again, I liked but... it and I think that kind of was quite nice that mm. meant you got used to all the people and you actually cared about the, some of the characters mm-hmm. um, apart from Toby who you know lost it pretty early on but generally speaking I, I liked all the characters um, and when they did end up dying you kind of think oh that's a shame and that's, a, that's the best way of doing it is you get used to them and then they get killed so you're like oh i'm hoping that the two parts that come up have got that kind of same feeling of you really get into those characters and then in the second half something happens to them i'm just repeating myself (laughs) (laughs) no i was going to say actually i love the first uh, i love the single episodes i I thought it was great season seven doing that I think I've said it many, many times. I loved those. Well, look at the single parts in season six. Doctor's Wife, Girl Who yeah, Waited, exactly. God I mean, they're, Complex. They're just like, bang, you know, straight in there and out. And they're, they're fantastically written. The very... What Russell T. Davies used to do is he'd bung loads of ideas in, whether the ideas really worked in the story or not. And generally, his writing had so much brio mm. that you don't really notice that the ideas don't work. 
brio. That's trained, sir, isn't it? No, it's something you put in your hair to make it stand up. Okay. <laughs> but but Ross T Davis's forty-five minute episodes tend to have, you know, too much in the way of ideas. Mm. Whereas the ones under Stephen Moffat, something like the God Complex, God mm. Complex, it's just one idea mm. that works out through the forty-five minutes. That's possibly why they work better, I think. Mm. Work better in terms of pacing, anyway. And the girl who waited, same thing. Doctor's wife, same thing. Mm. It's just an idea. And everything... I know I say this. When you write a story, you have a central idea and everything else has to be in service to that idea. Which is why stories like Daleks in Manhattan don't necessarily work. Because Stephen Moffat... Stephen Moffat's allowing his writers just to take an idea and work it through. Whereas Russell T. Davis used to say, right, here's your idea, and I also want this, this, and this. Which would be like, Pigmen, Empire State Building, and all this kind of thing. He'd say, these have to be in your story. And the better writers would be able to find a way to make them fit together that would seem as if they were all natural parts of the story. But that didn't always happen. And sometimes it's really patently obvious that it's just an idea thrown in because Russell T. Davis thought it was a good idea. The impression it gives me is that these those stories are kind of watered down. Daleks in Manhattan, the idea behind it, obviously the, the, the situation and what was going to happen in it and what was going to happen to the Dalek race in it was worthy of a two-parter. But when, yeah. you, when you actually watch it, it's, it's fairly thin. Because some of that stuff meat. is almost made frivolous. Mm, yeah. It's like in... School reunion, great story about Rose meeting Sarah Jane. Mm. But then you've got this idea about the scasis paradigm, mm. the God mm. equation. And it's like something like the God equation, I think, Massive. should be a season arc. Yeah, I think that's something yeah. that should be threaded throughout the entire season. Mm. Building up to a two-parter at the end that just deals with that. I don't like the Krillotane either. I think the Krillotane, the the idea behind the Krillotane is fantastic, mm. but the realization of those creatures is. You didn't think that was good? No, not the I CGI. Liked it. I love the I idea. Like the CGI, yeah. But uh, no, you're right. I think that the, the paradigm, the cases found it for that is that's an arc, and you're right. Russell T Davis had loads of ideas. Big, fat, amazing, juicy ideas, which yeah. you literally throw away in episodes. Mm. You kind of think, God, that could have gone on for ages, that one. Um, especially seeing now, we're getting arcs from Stephen Moffat, which you know threaded through and they start twinkling at the end and exploding there and taking us off different directions here. So, uh, yeah, well, I'm hoping that the next season's going to have that. And also, I think it's good for Peter Capaldi to have two episodes because you, you can really take his time with he, getting to grips with uh, whatever the script is there. And what I really get to like... See his pacer. What I really like about it is that Russell T. Davis, it was like three singles, a double, two singles, a double, two singles, a double. Every friggin' year. Past, forwards, present. Past, forwards, present. Every friggin' year. So that by the time you got to Series 3 and Series 4, the episodes themselves were great. I, there's not a single Russell T. Davis episode that I don't love, that I don't enjoy. I can sit down and watch any one of those. But when you're in the middle of Series 3 and you're thinking, right, next week's 45 minutes in the future and then the week after that is the two parts in the past and you're thinking, I know exactly what's coming. <laughs> Was Stephen Moffat, <clears throat> he did his first series under the Russell T. Davis format, mm. except he changed one thing which, looking back on it now, is quite significant. Under Russell T. Davis, the first two-parter would always be 
the big fun one. Hmm. And then the second two-parter would always be the slower, scarier one. So in the first series, you had Aliens of London, and then you had The Empty Child. And in the second series, you had the big Cyberman story, and then you had The Impossible Planet. And then in the third series, you've got the Daleks in Manhattan, and then you've got Human Nature. And in the fourth series, you've got the Sontaran two-parter, and then you've got Silence in the Library. So you always knew that the first one was going to be bigger and more fun, and the second one was going to be more personal, mm. rather slower and more thoughtful. Oh, I'd forgotten about Human Nature being a two-parter. Actually, that was probably the best two-parter there's been. But Stephen yeah. Moffat, in his first series, yeah. does the slower, more thoughtful one first, and the big fun one second. Mm. So you've got the Angels two-parter, before you get the Silurian one. Mm. And he changed, just by a simple turnaround, switching those two, he changed how the series built. Because with Russell T. Davis, you always knew you were getting the fun episodes at the start and it would get darker as the series went on until you got to the finale. Stephen Moffat changed that in his first year. And then in his second year, he did something completely different. And then in his third year, he did something completely different again. And then in his fourth year, he did something completely different again. Every year he's been doing it, Doctor Who's been different. Unpredictable. Mm. And I like that. I like that a lot. I, it's, yeah, <clears> it's always <throat> brought music to my ears when I hear that they're shaking things up every year, doing something mm. slightly different. It just it just shows that there's no treading water. It's, it's <clears> always <throat> moving somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. I, know, I know the cynics will say, oh, they're always the same, the Moffat stories. But, you know, the... They're not. not. They're not. <laughs> They're not. They're not. Um, I ask you this every episode. Have you managed to watch Broadchurch yet? No. Oh, bloody hell. Because there's a point I want to make. Well, you made the point last time, actually. Did I? Yeah. About the long game? Yeah. Did I? Yeah. All right. I was going to get your opinion you on didn't, it. All... Uh, you didn't go into details, but you said no. what your point was. Mm, okay. Right. I'm just interested to know your opinion on after you've seen <clears> it, whether you agree with me. Oh, I'll get there. Yeah. It's all on the... I've got three episodes left, I think. It's all on the Sky Plus. Just in case I find in an hour here and an hour there. Mm. Especially when you've got films to review, because it's kind of more important to get through those first. <laughs> G'day, host of the new... <clears throat> G'day, host of the Blue Box podcast. Kieran here. God. I've been in hospital for quite some time, recovering from a rare affliction called Watching Last Christmas, but I have returned to write about your latest podcast featuring Phil Cannon and Friends. It was a topping instalment, to say the least. As I said at the time, my favourite story is Tomb of the Cybermen, because I do respond to you, even though you're not talking to me, nor can you hear me. It was the first episode I saw with a new doctor due to missing episodes. The novel was also at my school library as a kid. It took me all of pre-primary to read, but I never stole it. I stole Fury from the deep, though. <laughs> Off my library? Yep. Oh, you've not listened to the Friends podcast yet. Somebody in that podcast, he borrowed a library book so often that in the end he just never bothered taking it back. And he still has it to this day. That's terrible. So do I. I know you do. <laughs> My mate tried to sell me one. The Invasion of Time. He tried to sell <clears> me it. He said, do you want to buy it? Have you got the Invasion of Time? I said, no. He said, oh, I've got a copy. And he'd literally gone in the library that day and just nicked it. With lack of respect. Disgusting. I took it back. That's, that's, why that's, the sort of that's why I've got a baseball bat. I've got a baseball bat underneath the counter. Did you pay him for it? Yeah. How much? Fifty p. Ah, that's 
Yeah, I know. I hope you, hope you took it back and signed it back in so they had to pay the late fee. <laughs> the only book I've got is from 1974 and it's The Bernstein Bears called The Bear Scouts. One of my favourite all-time books. I'm so glad my mum nicked it. One of your... I've got to get... I've got to... I, it's one of those things where I just can't let it pass. It's one of my favourite all-time books. Oh, stop so it. it's an, Yeah, I know. It's an all-time book. Oh, yeah, How many all-time books are there so this is your favourite one of them? I'm not talking to you. <laughs> hey, right, I'm going back. Do you ever get, like, squatting rights on books? Because with my library, I've said before... <laughs> squatting on books? <laughs> You've just given Sharaz Jig. Sharak Jig. <laughs> You've just given Sharak Jig a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, you should get squatting rights on books. In- oh, don't repeat oh, it! Oh, no. <laughs> Because I can't think of a better way of... I used to get... Dr. You can't think I of a better to... way of putting it than squatting on a book. <laughs> I can think of places I'd rather put it. <laughs> I used to get a celebration at the library over and over again. You used to get a celebration at the library. Is that a euphemism? Oh God. You're really trying to eat them out now. <laughs> Oh, you know surely, surely if you've taken it out about ten times. Oh! <laughs> Easy. Do you know what? Sherrick Jizz would love uh, one of my radio shows. is called Two Knobs and an Oscillator. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's, it's all the way but my co-host opened the show with, should we get our knobs out then? Bang on. Bang on. <laughs> Celebration. And he got away with it. He got away with it. What is it? Celebration. Yeah, I can't talk about it anymore. <laughs> it's gone past the point. But surely if you take out a book enough and nobody else wants it, they should just let you have it. Makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Listeners, if you could see Simon's face, he's just sitting there all defiant in front of a librarian. It's not, <laughs> it's not going to work. All right, it's not going to work. All right. <clears throat> the reason I bring up the euphemisms as they come up, as we go through the podcast, is hopefully to head Sharak Jizz off at the pass. Oh, that's even worse. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, I'm not going back into an Should attempt. Head him off. <sighs> I'm not going back into an Australian accent for the rest of Kieran's because it's too oh, difficult. Thank the Lord. He says, "I'm also in full agreement with Phil that the so-called series six is simply Doctor Who's worst season of all time, of all time, Ooh. except to its season twenty-four, obviously." The finale is the Doctor getting married, and two of the hif- cliffhangers include I'm your daughter and I'm pregnant. They could have at least gone all the way and had I'm pregnant and you're the father. Nevertheless, it'll be a cold day in hell if I ever watch the wedding of Doctor Who again. And after first watch, I've avoided Paradise Towers and Delta and the Banana Men for nearly ten years. So far, so good. Rant over... Actually, no, I didn't even mention the Doctor's wife. God Almighty, if that episode was a person, I'd shoot it in the face. (laughs) Look at Simon's little face. It's nothing like going over the top, is it? (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) You didn't talk about Rose much, though, so I will. When it was announced that Doctor Who was coming back, I had only been a fan for 11 days. 11 gruelling days of the wilderness years. And that's why my opinion on Series 6 doesn't count. That's right. But as I was five... <laughs> Sorry. Oh. <laughs> 11 days in the wilderness, how dare he? <laughs> that thing about Series 6, that doesn't appear to be written on the piece of paper. It appears to be something that I just made up. Oh. 
But as I was five, I was only told about it on the day it was broadcast, so when I saw Rose, I was slightly confused, because I had only seen up to the Armageddon factor before then. That's Armageddon factor, and he's complaining about Series 6. That's why I dressed as Tom Baker for the premiere. We also had popcorn covered in icing sugar. Good times. Oh, sounds good. Anywho, I have a question for you. Do you think 100% visual realism is important in Doctor Who or in any show or film? I hear many people complain about bad costumes, poor CGI or wobbly sets, but nobody complains about stage plays being unrealistic with their curtain backdrops and cardboard sets, do they? I imagine that by this point in your show you have already had 68 euphemisms or maybe even 69. But being the... (laughs) He's not wrong though, is he? No. (laughs) But being the wise old man that I'm not, I rec- I would recommend leaving the delightful correspondences from Sharak Jizz for later on in the show as not to deter new listeners. Or don't. I love them. Keep them coming. See the rose, be the rose. Kieran Hyman. Thank you, Kieran. Yeah. <clears throat> it's all right. I have, sh- I have saved Sharak Jizz for the end of the podcast. <laughs> <clears throat> Shooting the doctor's wife in the face. <laughs> Limey. Oh, guys. Well, we haven't even started yet. No. Well, I don't think this will actually take too long. I don't no. know. It might do. We'll see. We'll see, won't we? Well, it's basically just a list. It is. I'm just going to read a list out for the next half an hour. Okay. It depends, I suppose, how much we comment on it. But. Popcorn covered in ice and sugar. That sounds okay. absolutely horrible. It does, but I'm going to try it anyway. And I'm going to watch Rose whilst I'm doing it, just to see how he felt. At the time. Well, we should all watch Rose on the 26th, and we should go on Facebook and find the event called Rose at 10, so that we can all make a little donation to the Terence Higgins Trust on Russell T Davis's behalf when well, we do. Great idea. Great stuff, yeah. <clears throat> Is that on Facebook? Yeah, Rose at 10, it's called. Yeah. That was from Ian Martin, actually. <clears throat> Good stuff. Good man. Right, we are here to celebrate 10 years of new Doctor Who and what we have done is we have voted in four categories we could have done so many more but I just wanted to keep it to the big ones we three and Mark have voted in four categories and you two have no idea how that voting went so you're going to find out as I turn this piece of paper over and start reading the results and then a fifth category was voted for by our listeners so I shall save that one for last Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> well, before we start, Rose, then, the Doctor Who coming back, we have talked about this before, but yeah. Lee, the moment you found out... That what? Rose? About Doctor Who coming back. That was you. I know it was, but... As you want the story again. <laughs> yeah, why you, not? Well, because was, that's why we're here. A, I was working at a library in Exeter Central, big library, very busy. You are a postman, so you were bringing all the stuff to us, and every every other day you're popping with a little nugget about Doctor Who or whatever. And I, you came in and told me, I oh, know it really is coming back. Doctor Who is coming back. No, it's really coming back. It is coming back this time. And I don't know what my face was doing, but I, in my head, I was just going, yeah, whatever, JR. We've heard this so many times. I'm not going to believe it until I see it actually on the television set. And I was still like that, actually, for a very long time until Russell T. Davis started doing his editorial in Doctor Who magazine. I thought, this is getting serious. This is real. This is coming back. It's, it's on. And he was doing such a great job at making us all feel, fans, all feel very safe in his hands. I loved those editorials, they were great. And of course when it came back, 
boom, it was just one of the best things ever. I was so excited. I nearly, cr- I nearly cried in front of my entire family. I didn't, because <laughs> <coughs> I'm, a, I'm a man. But um, <clears throat> no, we did. And, you know, and it's obviously, I was trying to gather everybody around. It was a, one of those awkward situations where I wasn't at home. I was in somebody, an, another part of the family kind of household back in Bournemouth. So I had to try and convince two families to watch it. Um, me and my son, who's much, much smaller then, and my daughter watched it. So that was fine. Trying to get everybody else to shut the hell up and watch it was really difficult. By the end, they, it was everybody was like, "Well, that's really good. I can see why you like this now, Lee." It's going to take me twenty years to try and explain how good it is, but uh, I was like, very, very, very proud. <laughs> it was brilliant. <laughs> Even a cock up from what's his face. Oh, the um, Graham Norton thing. Which I thought was all part of the episode. Well, it did. It sounded like the radio that was yeah. coming from Wilson's room when <laughs> Rose was looking for it. Conspiracy. I just thought, oh great, you got it back and you had to get your fucking foot in, didn't you? <laughs> I Excuse me? Added... Fricking, I said. Oh. I thought it added something. That's a shame that hasn't really been put on as a DVD extra. I quite like that, actually. Yeah, well, there's lots of things that aren't on the new series DVDs that could have been. Yeah, well, that's my experience. I, I, yeah. Shimon. Mm. Uh, my memories are quite vague, but I do... Do you remember n- how you found out? I think it was a news report. I think it was a BBC News report. Um, I heard it was coming back. I didn't know. I wasn't getting the magazine anymore. I'd gone off the boil. Yeah. And so I wasn't seeing any of these editorials. Um, I read a bit about Russell T Davis being involved and then saw that he'd got a track record. But same as you, I I was cynical, very cynical. And we're talking about the age where, I mean, it wasn't X Factor wasn't on, but certainly that age of television had started. Saturday Night Television had started to be pretty damn awful and the cynical side of me said I, I, like you I'll believe it when I see it and I, I'll believe it's any good when I see that it's any good yeah. but I'm going to hope and pray that it's any good probably the one bit of news that did make me think ooh this is different was the announcement of Christopher Eccleston and then I thought oh yeah. this is this is this is going to have some kind of class to it well the, the, the announcement of Billy Piper was, was the first announcement wasn't it before no 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 was it, was it? Christopher Eccleston was announced okay, so when there Chris were rumours about Billy Piper that's right yeah. so mm. when Chris was announced I was looking at him thinking what who are they picking this guy's an amazing actor and he's a skinhead you know it's like what's, what's going on here basically uh, you know a few years beforehand Paul McGann was on the front cover of Doctor Who magazine holding a crystal with no hair and I thought, this is great, we're going to get a skinhead doctor. And of course they put, made him into Byron. But, um, uh, and, then when, and when Chris Rickleston came, I was just thought, this, this is going to be great. The guy's a skinhead, he's going to be hard, it's going to be, be really interesting. Um, then watched Second Coming as a bit of research and, and just fell in love with him. I thought, this is going to be fantastic if he's involved. Then he said Billy Piper. And me and probably every fan in the world suddenly went, what? This uh, pop singer. I had the complete opposite reaction. No, no, but you came in because I remember you saying that. You came in and, and convinced me. You said, no, no, you know, give it a go, give it a go. And I said, oh, That'll be or, a good dynamic, or, I said. Yeah, I said, you, were, you know. you right as well. Just thinking about it, it, it was kind of the opposite situation with when the Star Wars prequels were announced and all the details of those. I read everything about the Star mm. Wars prequels mm. from the very first picture they put on the internet. Luckily, I was in a job played by mail games where we use the internet all the time so I was able to go on and I went to starwars.com and I saw the very first picture which I think was a picture of the inside of one of the uh, the dwellings on Tatooine and it was like oh my god Star Wars is back it's part of it and and I 
I listened, you know, I read the article, saw the pictures, there were some beautiful photographs, the designs, everything like that. And of course, the realization was, <laughs> was completely the opposite, was, was a certain <clears throat> amount of disinterest and a certain amount of distrust that it was going to be any good. And it was only those bits of news about Russell T. Davis and Christopher mm. Eccleston that made me mm. think this is going to be worth watching. And, I t- and, I, and then the trailers came on. And the I trailers thought, are great. They were, yeah. And I was like, right, okay. And then I sat down with my girlfriend and her daughter and we watched it together. Do you know what, we... the, the, what the really exciting thing was? I, it was a great year, wasn't it? Because so many things were coming out about Doctor Who. You know, uh, the way it was marketed was amazing. And all these toys were coming back out and these books were being released. And it's was like, oh my God, you know, Doctor Who's it's back. And it's great. And I remember going to London and there's a billboard the size mm-hmm. of about four houses with, with him and Billy Piper on. There was one down in St David's at the railway station. Yes, yeah, there was actually, yeah. And I looked at that and I took a picture straight away. But I just didn't trust it. I just thought, yeah, I think I just, um, because of what happened with the McCoy series and I suppose yeah. the fact that I'd fallen out of love with it. And I quite liked the TV movie. I didn't hate it. Uh, mm. and, but I just felt that, yeah, it's not going to last because it, it's almost like building the castle on sand. I don't. I didn't feel that there was the trust from the BBC with mm. it as well. I didn't think that maybe they would invest in it like they should. But lucky for us, they did. And mm. and at the end of it, yeah, at the end of Rose, yeah. How did you feel? Yeah, pretty. I thought it was all right. I thought it was all right. I mean, I thought it was great. It was far better than I thought it was going to be. It was the, the next episode on. I've said this before. The, the next episode, which literally made me well up right. and emotionally yeah. affected me. And I thought, oh my God, Doctor Who has never done this to me before. As much as I love the old series, it was not It was never an emotional connection. There was no connection. emotional response, was no. there, really? I loved Rose. Mm. I could have done with the entire series being like Rose. I know it's like me Scooby-Doo too. done as live action, <laughs> but I think, I think there's a place for Scooby-Doo done as live yeah. action. And I think, I think if Doctor Who had carried on, doing Scooby-Doo as live action, mm. I think that would have really worked. And of course, Russell T. Davis, by the end of that first series, had taken it somewhere else. But if that had carried on, those first five episodes, because mm. let's face it, those first five episodes were one thing, and then from Dalek onwards, it was something else. But if those first five episodes had been the template for how the series would have carried on for the next five years, I think it would still have been massively successful. Some of that script is beautiful. So the, the, funny. the conversation between yeah the doctor and, and so Rose are just... deft as well is what yeah, it is because yeah, yeah. there's so much information just in a throwaway pun or quip yeah you know the whole thing was hanging in a balance too it needed to be it needed to blow everything else out of the water that's on TV in order to survive it just had to the and great, I think it did the great thing about that it first did. episode is it doesn't go for the emotional jugular straight away because that could have been off putting uh, yeah if you throw a science fiction series in people's faces and then you know, your first episode is something that tries to tug at the heartstrings, tries to get them to take science fiction seriously. It's very po-faced and not many jokes. They'll watch that first episode and then they'll seriously think about whether they want to come back for the second one. But you throw something like Rose, which is light and funny, and it's light and funny enough that from one second to the next, everybody watching at home is thinking, where's this going next? And it's urban, you know, it's, it, yeah. it took it to the streets for the first time properly since Survival. It just literally carried it on from Survival, didn't it, where you just went into London town and you just saw stuff going on. It was it was just beautifully done. And that wonderful thing about chips and space and yes. all that kind of stuff. That was the end of the world. 
I know, I know, it came, didn't it? But it's just the kind of it like did that. touch on that, sort yeah, of. But the position yeah. between what I'm trying to say is obviously the way that we are introduced to Rose is by is through Rose, normal everyday assistant at a shop. Then suddenly this alien turns up, and you think. Yeah. Do you know and actually the really doctor until way. Peter Capaldi came along, the doctor's never been so alien as he as he is in Rose. I mean, I know it's the first episode, and he's kind of new to you in some respects. But the way he talks, there is a there's a there's a disconnection between him and the human race. There is, it? and it's in that beautiful speech about the world turning, which yes. is actually an emotional heartstring tug. And it, that was the only. Part. And that was added afterwards, of course. Oh, was it? I didn't know. But it was. It was. That was it, wasn't it? It was just that little. That's all you needed, because the rest of it was a big, you know, cartoon. And then you had this small moment about, mm. I can feel this. Oh, no, I, I think the build-up to that was added afterwards, beautiful, but that might have been in from the start. That's the moment my, my whole body just froze, and I thought, God, this is good. <laughs> that writing's brilliant. That bit was spoiled for me, because they showed it on some other programme about a week before. Oh, no, really? Yeah, it was That's like... a spoiler. Yeah, oh, you see, <laughs> it's not really a spoiler. It's just, I hate, you know, I trailers and mm. clips that they show. People will say, how many times have you watched such and such a clip? You know, there's a clip from the next episode that's yeah, coming up. Yeah. And I'll say, I haven't. Because I don't want to get to that point in the episode and have myself taken out of the episode by recognising it and knowing the dialogue backwards. That's why I like these little yeah. trailers, these little teasers that they put out for Pixar movies about a year before the film comes out. But the other day, um, my daughter... Are they watching... like the prequels in Doctor Who? Whereas it yeah. helps you with the episode, helps your understanding of and helps your enjoyment of the episode, but doesn't actually spoil anything that's in yeah, the episode. No, no. The other day, my daughter was watching a DVD, Disney one, and it had the teaser for Frozen. And it is brilliant, that, that little one-minute, two-minute thing. It's brilliant. It's just, it's just like a little comedy thing between the reindeer and the snowman. It's utterly brilliant. Mm. Yeah. And it blows the film out of the water. Oh. Mm. Which is pretty hard to do when it's Frozen. It is, yeah. <laughs> All the kids, the, the little girls love it. Yeah, but, whatever. You know. But, yeah. but, <clears throat> honestly that trailer is brilliant. it is what it is mm. and so is the X Factor which much as you might hate it is also responsible for bringing families back together in front of the television on a Saturday night I think that and Doctor Who yeah but there are all sorts of things now Doctor Who was primarily but not entirely solely responsible for turning Saturday night back into a family viewing night mm. and that has filtered through into every aspect of the Saturday evening experience now yeah, X Factor and, and Strictly and mm. it, is, it just occurred to me actually the X Factor thing is if I was 15, 16 and we were watching X Factor at home it would be the same situation as it was when Top of the Pops was on because I used to really upset my sister because I just slag stuff off on there and she'd like it and you know she'd go but why do you bother watching token? this if you hate it all <clears throat> But by the same token, you can't not watch it. No. Because it's compulsive. It is, yeah. And X Factor's the same. Well, I'm sure it is, but I don't watch it. But I can imagine that it would be. We've just started watching The Voice. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's uh... Same sort of... It's just a little bit... It's a slightly different class of singer. Mm. But it's basically the same thing. It is, yeah. But it's, it's compulsive viewing. Mm. Because once you start, you've got... Is that mm. person going to do well? Well, that person didn't sing very well there, but they're all saying that person's a good singer, so are we going to see them turn that around? And all this kind of stuff. You get involved. The judges have got some kind of track record, which, artistically, which the ones on The X Factor haven't. No, they've just got... Uh, they're just... They've got other Sharon kinds o of track Sharon records. Os yeah, Sharon Osbourne. What? The, uh, she's Is an she agent, a judge she? on The X Factor? She, well, she was, wasn't she? And, oh, yeah, yeah. But I don't actually know what she's... 
Well, she's an agent. She's an agent. Well, an agent is more likely to be able to spot talent than somebody who's a singer. Do you think? Well, that's what an agent does. It's what they get paid for. Yeah, yeah. I, well, they can spot something that will sell, I suppose. Well, and that's, that's what difference. Simon Cowell does. He spots things that sell. Uh, he's very. His talent is spotting what is current and what sells at the moment. That's what his talent is. His yeah, finally more of the same. He that's he basically Madonna, main, isn't it? He maintains the status quo. No, Madonna's always a little bit ahead. She's very good at spotting the person who's the next big thing. Simon Cowell's very good at spotting what is the big thing. Yeah, but that's what I mean. It's mm. not that far removed. No, but the, the difference well, being Simon Cowell doesn't care, but he's talked about the X Factor on this <laughs> podcast before. If you're wondering why all the records sound the same, Simon Cowell. Records have been sounding the same since the 1950s. No, 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 no. Yeah. No. Yeah, you look at... No. You look at... <laughs> production techniques have changed fairly recently, particularly with this, this battle of... I'm not going to go into it now, but the battle well, of volume. Well, everything's compressed. Compressed a buggery, yeah. So yeah, you get, but... So you, you look at the waveforms and you they're You look all at like, the big band sound of the 50s. Yeah. All the records there had that big band sound. Mm. You look at Phil Spector, all his records have the wall of noise sound. Mm. You look at things like the Monkees, that was a put-together band by a record company who just wanted a bit of the hit money that the Beatles were getting. It turned into a great band. Maybe they did, but they were still the, what, the JLS of their day. There was a style, yes, certainly, certainly, but... <clears throat> but As there's also said, a sound. You listen to those records, and you listen to a record from the 60s, and a record from the 90s that's aping the sound of the 60s, and any two records from the 60s, even if they're completely different types of music, mm. will sound a lot more like one another than the record from the 90s, even though the record from the 90s is trying to sound like one of those records from the 60s. Yeah. yeah. It's like... <clears throat> I, I see what you're saying, yeah. but you can say that about any period of music. Yeah, but not to the extent of things like wow. the production, like like I'm saying. Well, and the compression's not good. But then in the 80s, there was a similar thing going on with music in the 80s. I suppose, yeah. Well, well, I think it's ironic, you're, you're just though. saying pop music, aren't you? Because don't forget, there's... I'm talking about essentially monkeys the charts. and things yeah, like that. Yeah, that's the charts. If you look, I mean, aside from the charts... There's a billion and one there's, amazing... There's the flip side of it stuff. is the MP3 generation, people making their own music at home, and then there's a lot more diversity there, and there's a lot yeah. more talent there. But, you know, like I say, the age of Simon Cowell is that they push. So you just ignore the chart radio stations and listen to the radio stations that play the Six other music, stuff. Yeah. I just don't listen to anything else but Phonic FM. The great thing about today <laughs> is that you have all that extra choice. So it's easier to ignore the X Factor yeah. generation if you want I to. I never use playlists. Psychologically, though, I find it quite difficult. I'm just trying to train myself back into listening to albums again because I think there's, yeah. there is so much music. Definitely. You, it's almost like channel hopping. It's very difficult. You, you have to make yourself concentrate on a particular artist. Or you just you can end up just listening to snippets of people's music, which That's I don't think is healthy. That's the interesting thing about um, Doctor Who. How do you stop people from channel hopping out of Doctor Who? Mm. It's just it. I'm sure people don't do it. And once you start watching it, you are hooked from the beginning, aren't you? And this is with Rose and those earlier ones. You just had those few minutes at the beginning, every single time. You just oh no, I don't want to go make a cup of tea. I've got to watch this. Mm. And it, mm. I saw the effect on people in in the room that I was watching it with many times, where they would be grabbing a tea and kind of like still watching the television set and sitting down. They're not even Doctor Who fans. I loved it. The mm. thing about it is, 
With other series, there's, well, to put it in the most cliched of fashions, you know what you're getting. Mm. With something like, I always give the same examples, I'll try and give a different example. With something like Silent Witness, you know what you're getting. Downton Abbey. You know from, with Downton Abbey, you know exactly what you're getting. As soon as the episode starts, you might not be able to predict the dialogue, (laughs) necessarily, obviously, (laughs) but you'd be able to predict the story beats. And as soon as a plot's introduced, you kind of know where it's going or that it will either turn in one direction or the other. But there are only two directions in which that plot can turn. So you watch a series and what you're watching to find out is, is A going to happen or is B going to happen? But you're not, you don't have a panoply of options. Whereas with Doctor Who, what you've got, and the very few series that have this, got wide open range of options of where the plots can go Mm. but you also have a bedrock of characters who aren't gonna do a wide range of different things because they're human beings so the characters are either going to go in one direction or the other but not anywhere whereas the plots are wide open around them so you've cut it's like a to use least favorite expression rather than being like a cheesecake where it's kind of two layers and you know what taste you're getting. It's like a trifle where the bottom layer is the bottom layer is always the same. And you know you're going to get a bit of that bottom layer in every mouthful. But every mouthful will contain a bit of that bottom layer and something else. And you're not going to know what that something else is until your spoon is in your mouth. And that's what you get with Doctor Who. How does it feel? How does it feel? Hey. To eat trifle like you do. (laughs) We only have to look about you and we'll see what it's done to you. (laughs) What? (laughs) You're singing Shoe Bunday. Oh. And on that note, right, it's time. Time for the votes. Okay, I've got to hold these up so you can't see them. Okay, we've got. Was that a drum roll? Yeah, from my stomach. That's a kettle drum, then. <laughs> what? I'm not, con- I'm not wait- concave, I'm convex. Don't do that, you'll wake the baby. <laughs> well, it's not a snare drum, is what I'm saying. It's quite tight. I'm talking about the size of it, really. <laughs> I'm talking about the skin, go on. Okay, we got... We had four categories. And... Okay, let's do favourite regular first. Okay. Anybody... From the last 10 years, apart from obviously the Doctor, who's been a companion or a recurring regular. So that could be, I suppose, the Paternoster Gang or any of the families of the companions. And of course the companions themselves and people like Captain Jack. And so the four of us voted, and I'm only going to do top fives on these categories. And the top five is as follows. In fifth place, a tie between Wilf Mart... And River Song. Mm. It's all right, you can react to these, because otherwise this is going to be a pretty dull I section am, of I the podcast. Reacting. reacting. Well, you know, River Song. You like Wilf Mott, but not River Song. I love Wilf Mott. If Wilf had cleavage, like River Song. <laughs> <laughs> he might have, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, so Lee's got to vote for Wilf there, and none of us have voted for River Song, which is amazing. No, we have, Simon and Mark. Oh, really? Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I loved her when she first came in. I think she's overused. 
like I loved it when she first came in. Okay, well, you've just said... Before she started being so important. I was going to say, you've, you've just said that kind of, you know, she's so important and she's overused. Mm. Um, so so think... why is she in your top five? Cause it's, because it's Because, because in essence, <coughs> I do like the character. I do like mm. the character. I just It's just one of those where it's, it's application. There's nothing wrong with the character. Okay I don't think there's that. anything wrong with the application. I don't think she was important... In the way that people seem to think. No, I think people no, have I, misunderstood that storyline. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've talked about it before, the tragedy of River Song. Mm. That she's in love with a man who can never love her back. Mm. And because it's seen out of sequence, she, because normally if you're in love with somebody who can't love you back, the hope is there. Mm. And by showing that story out of sequence, what you do is you take away the hope. So River Song knows from the instant that she falls in love with this man that she's never going to get him, but she can't save herself from loving him. Mm. So she always knows that. But I love that idea. I love the whole concept. I love the idea. I love the application. <coughs> Alex Kingston. And actually, gorgeous. Alex Kingston is amazing, and she's especially amazing in the first few of that she plays. But by the end of it, I was getting a little bit bored of her, you know, sweetie remarks and. I tell you what, series six was that good. Series five has got. A sci-fi stroke fantasy story arc and series seven has got a sci-fi stroke fantasy story arc in series five it's the cracks in time and in series seven it's clara going through the doctor's timeline Mm. series eight it's got the master stroke missy yes but the story arc in series eight is clara and danny right it's the relationship between clara and danny series six is a bit like a trial run for that Yes, it's got the death of the Doctor, which is kind of the way you sell it to an audience who are expecting a sci-fi stroke fantasy story arc. Mm. But series eight, series six rather, what it really is, is the story of River Song's tragic relationship with the Doctor. And in a way, that's almost a dry run for Clanny, Clanny? Danny Clanny. and Clara. <laughs> yeah, Clanny, Clanny for sure. Yeah. Or Dara. Clanny and Dara. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Stephen Moffat is like, okay, I tried that there in series six and it's deemed not to be successful that I did the story arc about characters rather than sci-fi concepts so okay that didn't work out quite so well but let's try it again and learn from the mistakes of series six and do in series eight so it also makes you wonder what will be series nine because he's alternated between I mean he's alternated between the emphasis because in series five it's also a character-based thing because it's about Rory and Amy, right? Mm. But it's basically the sci-fi thing. The emphasis is on the sci-fi thing. So it will be interesting to see where the emphasis is in Series 9. Will the emphasis return to the mm. sci-fi aspect or will the emphasis stay on the character aspect? Anyway... It might be a mixture of the two <clears throat> with Missy on board. Well, yeah. I, I mean, it's always a mixture between the two. It's where the emphasis is. It's, right. I wonder if Missy, being on board and right from the start, if this will be the Gallifrey year. Oh, it does make you wonder, doesn't it? I did think yeah. about that. Yeah, it would be the right time, wouldn't it? Because I've been saying for a while, since before the last series even started, I'm sure, that the way to do the Gallifrey thing would be to have the Doctor and the Master teaming it up, teaming yeah, up to yeah. find it together that in old some way. handshake from the Gopolis again coming back. And Terror of the Autons. Yeah, yeah. It goes back to Terror of the Autons. That worked. Yeah. I can see it <clears throat> She's good enough that it would work. Yeah. And she's interesting enough. And don't forget, and this is important, but in Death in Heaven, when 
the Doctor finds out what the plan is, the plan was never to destroy the universe or whatever. Her plan was to raise an army as a gift for the Doctor. So in Death in Heaven, even though it's, you know, because she's got a screw loose or whatever, the plan is utterly ridiculous, but she thinks she's his friend. Yeah. So it's not that much of a leap that the two of them can come together to find the Gallifrey that she said was there but there wasn't in the next series or possibly the series after, we'll see. And it's probably some way of tethering now. her, isn't he? And, um, hmm. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, if they found Gallifrey together, oh, you know, ultimately there'd be another twist there, another oh, twist absolutely. thrown in, something to do with Missy wanting to completely rule the Time Lords <clears> or whatever, <throat> or, you know, and it will get more complex. And I, I love the idea that we could go back to Gallifrey now, especially after seeing it in a time war and seeing a bit more of the society, a little bit, not much. It'd be good to really explore that that world properly, actually, and have a good look at it. Because we're at that stage in you know in Doctor Who's history where we can we can do that. Now. I'd be interested to know whether the next showrunner is prepared to have Gallifrey as a yeah constant as a constant in the new in their yeah. vision of Doctor Who. Well, the thing about having Gallifrey as a constant is you only need to go there once every four or five years. That's yeah. all the classic yeah. series ever did. You got to just knock them down a peg or two, get rid of some of their power, um, yeah. so they're not so influential. No, and it becomes maybe that you know the, the Doctor is actually a very important part of what well, he is anyway of, of Gallifrey history. So it's almost like okay, this this guy's out there and he's mending time, or he's done what he's doing. Mm. You better let him get on with it because our power's pretty weak. And maybe like who knows? I don't know whether they're going to be devious anymore, or whether, or whether they, they will come back because you know. Well, the deviousness is to do with the war that they were fighting against the Daleks. Exactly. <clears throat> if you bring them back. That allows you the option of having them in the background and visiting there once every few years. And it also allows you the other option that the war with the Daleks starts up again because the Daleks aren't going anywhere. No. So no. that threat that the Time War could start again is always in the background and becomes the new story of Gallifrey. Time War 2. Well, Second World War after well, the, the first one. The Doctor finds out where it is, but it's still hidden. After the so he can maybe. go back there and, and the Daleks get hold of him to try and find out where it is. So after the Great War, <laughs> everybody yeah. said we can <laughs> never do this again, and yet twenty years later, there we are doing it again. Mm. So this could be the story of Gallifrey. Too timid to get involved in another war again, even though the Daleks are out there. Doctor, they're happy to let him loose and fight the Daleks on their behalf, and it's always that threat that the time war will start yeah. back up. That becomes the storyline. That can work. Mm. It really can. Right, we better find out who came fourth in their favourite regular list, otherwise we actually will never get through this. <laughs> fourth was Rose Tyler. Okay. Which okay. I thought was a bit of a surprise that she's quite so low. I would have expected her a bit higher than that. First, second or third at least. Well, yeah, when you look at the top three, third is Rory, which mm. I think is a... I think, yeah, but I think with Rory, what's happened is he's everybody's second choice. I don't mean literally, but I mean figuratively. He's a bit of a sympathy vote, without being rude. It's like one of those things, your yeah. first choice is your favourite female companion, right? And then your second choice is, right, I'll save the second favourite female companion for third and put my favourite male companion in. Okay. It's like your favourite companion is your first vote, your favourite secondary companion is your second vote, and then your second favourite primary companion is your third vote. And because everybody likes Rory more than they like Mickey, he's come in third in the final rundown. 
Yeah, I can't remember where I put him on my list, but... Um... Well, I can tell you, oh, can you had him not at all, but the no. rest of us all had him. I, he was about sixth or seventh for me. I couldn't quite work out whether to stick mm. him up a bit higher. I quite, I think I quite like Mickey. I don't know. I can't even remember. I think it's a development of Rory. The fact that he there was this 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 seesaw thing going on with Amy, where you know Team Amy, Team Rory, that was all going on. The only it? reason I think I like Rory is because I like Arthur Darville. Yeah. And his character, I love his character, <clears throat> but I think his development was shocking. I mean, you know, if you're going to look after Amy for a thousand years as a centurion. You are going to be a different person at the end of that. And he was no different to what he was a thousand years before, which was a bit of a bumbling fool for a while. I think in, the, yeah, in, in season seven is where he and Amy really... It was that mm. looked after Amy. What ifs? And then in the Big Bang, the oh, universe God. was reset. That's so another reason go why back to the original that Rory, Rory part of me just doesn't... I can't, I can't handle that. So in season seven, I loved Rory in season seven. And Amy, actually. So they were both... The characters that they should have been originally. That's that's my own personal opinion. <clears throat> what Rory? Fan, I'm still confused about that. Well, so she was a cow though. I mean, she did develop, and she stopped being a cow. Eventually, a cow, yeah. that that was the story of Amy, wasn't it? I don't think she was yeah. supposed to be likable. If I'm honest, the moment. So, but what he did was he said this is a two series story arc, and in the first series, Amy is this messed up individual who treats her fella like a piece of crap because she's got this thing hanging over from her childhood. Mm. And then at the end of that first series with Amy and Rory, she marries him. And when she marries him, I mean, I'm not saying the instant she marries him is the thing that fixes her, Mm. but when she marries him, what has happened there is that she has made a conscious decision to put the shit in the past and to Mm. devote herself to this other person. And then in series six, she is somebody who's devoted to him and who's left the shit behind. Hmm. And so I'm not saying it's the marriage that did it, but the marriage is the moment at which she has consciously made that decision Hmm. and she's making that attempt to be a better person. And it was a good idea when I heard that they were going to have a married couple on board. I thought, this is great. This is actually really quite... Ah! (laughs) (laughs) I've lost my papers. Hang on. Yeah, carry on. Shall I carry on? Yeah. It's just amusing watching you bend. (laughs) You're always so stiff. Uh, But no, I've already given... Shara's tethering. <laughs> Shara's tethering. I'm, start, I'm starting to make notes, metal notes, so I hear words. Yeah, you know they're going to. You know he's going to pick up. Yeah, right? yeah. They'll they'll all be coming back. But um, oh, I can't remember what I was saying now. But uh, yeah, but the married, cu- the married couple anyway. thing was, was was a really good idea, and I just didn't think it was. It didn't get executed quite so well as I thought. But like I say, by the time we got to series seven, <clears> I liked the characters. They were more mature. They'd been together a few years. I hated the initial thing of her becoming a model. Why? Why would she be so utterly vacuous after seeing the universe? I don't know. Because anyway. the actress was a model in real life. So it's an easy... She needed work. It's an yeah, easy jump it, it to may, make. Yeah, I know. But the, anyway, but this is a sign on the dollar. It's an that, easy jump. that kind of thing where they are going to split up. And, uh, you know, and, and it was a really rubbishy way of trying to get the Doctor to patch them up and have them on board the TARDIS again. Oh, that's quite believable. No, no, not at all. There's no way that being married to Amy is going to be a straightforward process. No, no, but these guys have did. seen the entire universe and travelled in a time machine. Yeah. Right? They have. They would be bonded forever. Look at... No, 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 no. I don't think so. I don't think that's remotely realistic. I think it's really... <laughs> I don't think it is. No, Sorry, yeah. I have to agree. No, I you're right. It's true. All of it's true. <laughs> if you go 
on a round the world trip. Not the same. With your partner, right? I'm just giving you an example from okay. actual life. All right. You go on a round the world trip with your partner and you spend eight months circumnavigating the globe, seeing some amazing and wonderful things, undergoing experiences that you would never have in an ordinary life. You get back and you stop travelling and you settle down in a little two-up, two-down semi, back into normal life. You get some pretty dull jobs. This person that you've spent eight months seeing amazing sights with, what the hell do you talk to them about? What the hell do you and that person do when you get in from work at six o'clock and you're tired and you crash in front of the telly? You fall apart. Mm. Well, there's two or three things for that. Firstly, they've known each other all their life already, so it's not like they've just met. So they know each other really well and they've got on with each other all their lives quite well. Then but, they realise they've loved each other. But, then they go away. And all right, already... make your second point in a minute, right, but I'll on, answer your points as yeah. they come up. But that entire time... Amy has been the one who's messed up because of this fantasy friend she had when she was a child, who's been to all these psychiatrists and stuff, and who's now left that stuff behind. She's not the same person the, as she uh, was before they started travelling. around the world, I mean, they're travelling out in space, right? But they're also being threatened with their life every three minutes, and they've helped each other through that, and they've, you know, the doctor was that... So, you know, you, it's a different thing when you have... Yeah, but still people, at the end... When, you, when, you've, when you're in a war with people that, you know, that have been shot and there's a few survivors, you're never not going to ever talk to them again in an argument. And but you're just, also you're, you're never going to marry them and try and live a normal life with them. Let's And plus they could travel if they wanted to. Let's take the universe out of this. It's two people. It's people. People change over time. Relationships. You not, you get relationships where they go through three, four, five very intense situations, and the, and the relationships tend to do one of two things. Like you say, that either cements them or it can actually split them up. And the point yeah, is, ten years maybe. <sighs> no, I don't 50. think so. No, oh no, because traveling the TARDIS is like ten years in a month. It's intense. Mm. But the point that the series is making is that. The splitting up, the splitting them apart is only a superficial thing. Mm. They think they're breaking apart mm. and they get shown in Asylum of the Daleks that no, they only think that. Actually, they are bonded and they come back together. Mm. So all your points about, yeah, they should stay together actually hold true in the series. Okay, But people will undergo, once you've finished, like I say, that round-the-world trip, once you stop, if you're moving... Constantly for eight months. Once you stop moving, your brain freezes. It gets frightened. It doesn't know what to do with itself, and it takes something to knock you out of that. So the brain freezing is the bit where they divorce, and Asylum of the Daleks is the bit where that gets knocked out of them. So it takes it takes them to both sacrifice themselves in order to solve a paradox at the end of Angels Take Manhattan for them to realise they're going to stay together for eight six years without divorce. No, because they'd already made that decision four stories earlier in Asylum of the Daleks. Yeah, I know, but it seemed mm. quick. That's, that you're, being, you're talking quick. very frivolously about it, where actually, I, know, I, know. I think Stephen Moffat... I think it's that, a good idea, yeah. I just don't think, I, I think it was too... I think it works really well. Too, too throw away. I just think the it's a story pro, about no, people at the end of the day, the regardless reason, of the external influences. The reason why it seems throwaway is because he also has to tell the story of Asylum of the Daleks at the same time. If you could mm. devote the entire 45 minutes to the divorce in the way that a programme like Coronation Street would, yeah. But it's not Coronation Street. So if you're going to attempt to tell a story like that, you have to tell it in 
tiny, tiny little bits of scenes intermingled with all the science fiction stuff, and you just have to try and make the truth of the characters come through. And I think that's where a lot of Stephen Moffat's stuff gets criticised, because people will say the truth of the characters is not coming through. But I think it did. It did. Mm. It worked for me. Okay. Mm. I just thought it was a step back. Because after seeing Donna, a change completely from somebody who was vacuous to somebody who became worldly wise, universally wise, and you know, became that's quite intelligent. She well, she gained intelligence from, and logic and and decision making and trust and and all this through living with the Doctor. It was great. That, that was a fantastic, brilliant development for her. Ood was a terrible point for her. She nearly left, but she didn't stay with it. And then, you know, with the Amy thing, it's just, I don't know, it's just too up and down with all these ideas. I'll tell you what, I voted Donna pretty highly. Uh, well, we'll about to find out. When we, come to, when we come to that. Yeah. Donna but came what, second. Uh, but I don't think her uh, development was anywhere near as realistic as the Amy and Rory thing. I was going to say the same thing. I didn't think so either. I, I, in, in fact, you know, if she was that vacuous and she was realism. that much of a, um, a donut that for her to become that world wise was a minor miracle, really. Uh, it worked for the series. Was, it was terrible. Yeah, it was. Who pretended to be as factuous. Well, not, not pretend, but they thought they were. And I've, I saw them develop over years. Yeah, she had over a good heart. Years. And that came over through. years. Now no, you're making the same yeah, yeah, point no, that you yeah, just criticised the Amy and Rory story. We don't know how long she was well. with the Doctor Paul, but I mean, I'm saying over, Less over time. years. When yeah. Russell T. Davis did it, then, the stories it? continued immediately after one another. We saw that in the middle when Martha joined and they had the Sontarans and the fish people mm. on the same day. Yeah. But but Martha. Stephen Moffat shows them getting picked up and dropped off. He shows oh, yeah, time yeah. passing. Yeah, I think that's more realistic with Clara, definitely. Well, and Clara came first. She And she got did twice she? as much in... T- terms of how the voting went as Rose Tyler did. Well, let's face it, so far down the process for, for Stephen Moffat you'd, you'd like to think he's kind of learning as you've said, he's learning from the process plus you've got Jenna Coleman so could just you read being that utterly brilliant. Okay, fifth, in fifth place joint Wilf Martin Riversong fourth <laughs> Rose Tyler, third Rory Williams, second Donna Noble first Clara Oswald Wow That's a Clara one. Oswald is a combination of three things. One, exceptional actress. Mm-hmm. Okay, four things. One, exceptional actress. Two, rather attractive. Just a bit. But the other two things are, one, she's an interesting character. People didn't think so in Series 7, but actually I think it was already starting to come through in Series 7. But in Series 8, she turns into a very interesting character with a lot of character depth. Mm. But crucially, for he gives her a really interesting story. Mm-hmm. And that's the story, obviously, with Danny. None of the other... Riversong, perhaps, with her, what I think of as the unrequited tragedy of her love for the Doctor. Perhaps that's the only other character in the entire ten years who's had quite that much depth in their story. Donna, yeah, she had that tragedy at the end, but that was like a really one-dimensional tragedy in terms of the arc of the character Mm. she goes from being chavy to being brilliant and then she gets knocked back to being chavy again it's a very straightforward arc clara actually gets a really interesting story and she gets a really interesting character mapped onto the top of it 
so that she does unpredictable things, mm. very human things, and things that in the end are shooting herself in the foot. She's the she's the author of her own tragedy. And if she'd have left at the end of Death in Heaven, like we perhaps thought she was, like I thought she was, mm. she would have been the author of her own tragedy because she would have brought it all upon herself. That's a very interesting character story to tell in something like Doctor Who, where you don't really get those kind of stories. Russell T. Davis, for all this brilliant writer of character, never once wrote a character even remotely as interesting as the ones that Stephen Moffat's been writing. Mm. She's been yeah. she's been very lucky on um, on two fronts. I mean, we've been lucky in that she's a brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wder what you're going to say. You started saying about what she's got. No, there are four things that she's a brilliant <clears throat> actress, and you know, and she's rather attractive. And then there's two other things that she's been very lucky on both fronts. Yes, <laughs> in as much as she came along for the anniversary. Oh, so that makes sixty two. And some people say this this story about her being split through time is is um, a silly idea, but it's not. It's brilliant. It's brilliant, and it makes <laughs> sense for the for that to happen for the anniversary. Mm-hmm. I don't think people even think. First that. time I saw that, it annoyed me. I thought, God, blimey, that's making a massively important. Oh, how dare she want another? I thought, shut up, Lee. No, just she's a it. device by which it's to brilliant. look back through the Doctor's past. Yeah, it's brilliant, and it allowed us to write a great book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But also, you know, when you have a series, we've said this before, when you have a series like Doctor Who, you don't stop. No. You don't say, right, I only have, you know, X. The series has got to X and I can't move it on to Y. I've just got to stay at X and just keep doing X. You can't do that. And the thing about a series that begins with a mystery and Doctor Who begins with a mystery, actually, it's funny, on a sidebar, I heard something on something the other day and they said, oh, I don't like the way there's an emphasis on the companion because the series is called Doctor Who. The relevant <laughs> word being Doctor. And no, the relevant word in Doctor Who is not Doctor. The relevant word in Doctor Who is Who. The central tenet of the series is Who is the Doctor? And the only way you can ask the question, Who is the Doctor? is by showing a character in the series asking that question themselves and that person is the companion so the companion is by default the bridge between the viewer and the doctor and therefore the companion is the most important person in the series because even if your stories aren't all about the companion they're all about the doctor you still got to have the bridge between the viewer and the doctor to show those stories right getting back to the point i was making which i can't remember what was it uh we were talking about clara being oh we were talking about going back into the past yes, yes. yes right when you take on a series when you take on a series, same thing. This, the series has started with a conundrum. Who is the Doctor? And for the first six years, up until the War Games, that's a complete mystery. Once you get to the War Games, what happens then is that part of that mystery is peeled back. That's like Pandora's box opening. Mm. But also... <laughs> peeled back. Pandora's box opening. No, Sorry. But also, that is like the first stop... In the game, past the parcel, the first layer of parcel becomes is opened, and we get the first present, mm. which is that we get to land on the Doctor's planet. But we don't really learn anything about it. And then in the Deadly Assassin, we unravel another layer and learn a bit more. And that's how Doctor Who works. 
it's a series of adventures in between the music stopping and you finding out a little bit more about the character. And whoever writes Doctor Who, it is incumbent upon that person to unravel another layer of that parcel. Otherwise, the series doesn't work. Russell T. Davis did it. We might not think he did it because there isn't a single episode where all of a sudden we find something new out about the Doctor, but he created the entire Time War to make his Doctor a different person from Sylvester McCoy's Doctor and Paul McGabb's Doctor. That was Russell T. Davis's layer of the parcel being unravelled, the Time War. Mm. Now, Stephen Moffat's done it again. Now, Stephen Moffat has used several episodes to do the same thing, which is this whole Clara goes back into the Doctor's past and doesn't change the Doctor's past. Every time she goes back into the Doctor's past, she just confirms what we already know. When she's in Dragonfire or the Ark of Infinity or whatever, in the name of the Doctor, she's not changing the way that story happened. She's confirming the way that story happened. In Listen, when she goes back to the Doctor as a child, she doesn't change the person he's going to be. She confirms the person he's going to be. He would have been that. But she says a line that's a line from an unearthly child that us fanboys can say either, oh, that's a lovely touch that he's referenced that far back when he's doing this thing, or else we can be indignant about the fact that he said it. But that line in an earthly child stood in an unearthly child, whether Clara turns up there or not. Yeah. All she's doing by turning up there is saying, here is a character... Mm who has been the bedrock of this series for all this time, and even 51 years into this programme, we can still go back to the start and see how brilliant that character is. Mm. And all she's doing is shining a light on the wonderful person that this little boy is going to grow up to be. Mm. That was very good. Well done. Right. Right, we've done one category of the five and we're only an hour into this podcast. <laughs> Shall we get on with the second one? Oh, no. Okay, favourite story or favourite doctor? Let's do favourite doctor. Favourite doctor, yeah. Well, this is going to be a quick one, I'm sure. Fifth place, which is probably appropriate, but nevertheless, we're all going to scratch our heads and say, what? In fifth place, out of the five doctors we've seen in the new series, John Hurt. Okay. Well, he's oh. only in one story, isn't he? Yeah. I'm sure if John Hurt had had a series, you know, we'd have all voted him top or da- near as damn it. Yeah. But he's in one story, so he's kind of... It was it was bloody good in that one series, I've got to say. I, well, I was talking about this earlier on Facebook. I was talking to someone about it that even after... I don't I, I don't know many of the big finish Paul McGann stuff. After one episode, Paul McGann, one episode, John Hurt, both of them, you get a complete flavour of who that Doctor is mm. and how they... They behave, and that's mm. that's testament to the actors. But you're never going to vote it as your favourite, let's face no. it. No. Because it's just a tiny slice yep. rather than a cake. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> mm. Okay, then, of the four main doctors, the one that came in fourth place was Christopher Eccleston. Okay. It, it, this is hard, all right? It, let's face it, this is bloody difficult because they're all really good. It's almost the same argument as John Hurt, though, isn't it? It's one series. Yeah, and that's mm. the only reason he's down the bottom there. I can't remember who the other Doctor... Um, was. Not, what other Doctors were on the list? After five? Well, Tennant, Smith and Capaldi. Exactly. Tennant, Smith... Yeah. 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 We're also talking good, commitment to the series as well, aren't we? So how, how, how can you There's judge this? It's quite a hard one, I think. 
I think you have to go with your own your own personal favourites, the the person you adhere to, and you go, you know, like with Christopher Eccleston, he's down at the bottom there, but we're all saying how amazing he was in that first season, and what a great actress, and he is, he's he was incredible. But why is he that far down? It's it's just personal taste, isn't it? There's an element or was of, it more than I'm that? I'm sure there's an element of commitment to it as well, though, because we do feel that Capaldi, Smith and Tennant are real... Um, people have committed to the series. Yes. Yeah, OK. So uh, people thinking that outside of the Doctor universe, because um, Christopher didn't do this next season or something happened, and we're not getting him at conventions... We're only human. It, I know, we're only human, and that is going to taint our, our opinion of Well, I of, think it's a shame. It. I never, ever use that. I always look at the series and think, no, this is, no, fair dues. This is a great actor here. Fair dues. I'm not saying that came into my, my decision, but if you're asking me... Oh, where me, did you vote? Quite low? Or? I think, no, I, it sounds like that's panning out exactly how I voted. Yeah, I you both right. voted him fourth. Yeah. Mm. And so did Mark, and I voted him third. It's weird. Okay, well, fair enough. It's astonishing, though. If you do... Right, mm. 2005, April 2005, Unquiet Dead's just been on, you've got Aliens of London coming up. If you could, if you could go back 10 years and tell your 10-year younger self then, in 10 years' time, you're going to be voting for the people who've played the Doctor in this new series of Doctor Who, and this one's going to be your least favourite of the regulars. After the Unquiet Dead, would you really have said, yeah, OK? Or would you have said, what the F are you yeah, talking about? that is exactly where you go, isn't it? Yeah. You're going, what? It, can, it gets better than this? <laughs> Not only does, does it get, get better? better than this, there are three <laughs> that get... Hard. It does, in my head though, the, there is Christopher Eccleston is a kind of a bridge into the new series. Because and, you can't and, use and the thing that he was only in one year, no, because no, no. Capaldi's only been in one year yeah, as well, yeah, so mm, far. Mm. So it's not that, is it? Mm. You know, maybe it's too... It could be connection as well. Do you feel like you're connected to him as a doctor? He's the least doctorous doctor that we had, mm. wasn't he? He's the least eccentric and all that sort of thing. But it, it makes, of course, it makes all perfect sense now the way that Moffat's, um, you know, brought the time war in and made him tough and hard and blah, blah, blah. So he comes out of that still wearing a bit of a leather jacket. You know, he probably, his hair probably did grow when he got regenerated. We didn't see it. And he may have just shaved it off and gone, this is much easier. Let's get rid of all the hair. You know, I'm, I'm going to be out like a ninja now sort of thing but it, 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 so he's the most undoctorish doctor so maybe that's the thing I was really surprised when we went back down to the eccentric route with David Tennant I thought oh they're going this way I thought we're going to keep it cool and kind of so I was a bit worried that everybody just starts switching off again as well. I was just but like, the oh, nerd this. thing was becoming cool at the it time was, wasn't yeah, it yeah geek chic and we, we'll get to David Tennant in a minute but it worked well we'll get to him very very shortly <laughs> <laughs> in fact I might as well reveal it now the voting goes in complete chronological order, Eccleston fourth, Tennant third, Smith second, and Capaldi first. See, and what you said about Capaldi's been one season, which is why I wouldn't vote him above Matt Smith. That's why I didn't vote him above Matt Smith. I voted Matt Smith number one. Because I think it was too early to judge with Capaldi. It's too hard. It's why I've, I voted David Tennant number one, I believe. You voted Tennant first, Smith, yeah. and then Capaldi. Tennant, because he was like the Troughton for me. He was like the, the guy that cemented the series forever. I mean, we had Tennant doing a great, great job, and then, sorry, not Tennant, excellent, and then Tennant comes in and just, you know, he just makes, like, he, like I just said, he twists the Doctor from being the hard, cool guy to being the geek, and it survived really, really well. And that's due to Tennant's absolutely bonkers performance. 
you know, he may not be the the best actor in the world, but there's something about his absolute brilliant Doctor Who performance that had us all goggle-eyed watching mm, it all the yeah, time. You yeah. can't keep your eyes off the bloke. And it's somebody who can deliver about, I don't know, six or seven sentences uh, and then look in different directions, doing something with his hands, also, you know, doing a bit of a, a, a balletic dance by hitting a lever and delivering those lines so amazingly fresh and different than any other actor we ever saw before. And, you know, Matt Smith did that, but he did it well, after we saw I David was going to say... Everything you've just said about David Tennant goes double for Smith. Double. It, it does, and I love Matt Smith. And that's death. why Smith is better doctor than David Tennant. And everything you've just said about Tennant, in, in my mind. opinion, yeah. <laughs> and everything you've just said about Tennant, Capaldi takes all of that and does all of that in such a different way that you don't even see him doing it, even though he's still doing it. Oh yeah, I mean they all they all deliver differently, and beautifully. It was popcorn mm. Doctor Who with David Tennant. It really was, and mm. um, what's the and paradigm? I loved it at the time. I really loved it at the time, and I still love it when I see it. Yeah. But do you know? But if I compare it to Matt Smith, Matt Smith, it's just kind of this. There's another dimension which isn't there with Tennant. But let me just quickly throw this in. Uh, I know what you mean, okay? But mm. when we first had Matt Smith in season five. Uh, he he hit the ground running, right? He was he was incredible, mm. but he was quite young. He was quite fresh faced. He's quite a new actor, really, and I could still see that he was learning it, learning his craft. Mm. I know other people may not have seen it, but for some reason I saw this. Whereas with David Tennant, I didn't have that at all. Immediately as he as he started after the Barcelona, once we got that out of the way, he was straight there running. You know, New Earth. It was just it was like he'd been there for years absolutely nailed it on the first day for me Matt Smith didn't nail it until the second season mm. and he actually totally nailed it in season 7 and that that's when he was absolutely incredible mm, mm. on his last few so that for me it was just a cons- consistent 100% performance from turning from start to finish it's been incredibly lucky changed. all the way through so oh they're all great, great aren't they I mean I was going to say that, that you could actually uh, mention Chris Wilkerson in the same sentence as Russell T Davis as, as the people who brought Doctor Who back yeah, yeah because he was the right person for the job to do that to yeah. cement it as something that people take seriously that this is serious seriously good entertainment and television funny, then David Tennant came along who was the right person at the time because he was Bang! He was there, on the screen. Mm. You know, like Tom Baker used to say about John Pertwee, was that he's like the light bulb on the screen. That the, the TV would just light up because he was on there, and he was larger than life, and very attractive to women as well. Which got this other audience coming in as well, mm. um, uh, and and some men obviously. But um, and you had that, and then by the time Matt Smith comes in, you, he's got the opportunity to do almost like a Tom Baker with it. In that somebody that he's untested, mm. people he's untried territory, so he's able to do something with it that is completely fresh. David Tennant to a certain you know to a certain extent because he was a fan. I, I suppose this was almost like a predisposition to do what he thinks the Doctor is, but it's completely fresh for Matt Smith. And the most you get from it is Troughton because yeah. he started watching some Troughton, and I I. I get that link between Troughton and Matt Smith rather than Tennant, big star. So oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah, in performance, definitely. Yeah, 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 but there's kind of that freshness to it as well. That yeah. almost like he is a landmark doctor. The problem for me with Tennant is 
he's one of those actors you know what you're going to get from him. Whereas Smith and Capaldi and Eccleston, mm. they've all been, you're not sure what's going to happen next. And I prefer, you're not sure what's going to happen next, to you know what you're going to get. Mm. Which is why I so much preferred Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who than I did Russell T. Davis's. After the first series, it has to be said. Mm. The first series, the one with Eccleston, you didn't know what you were going to get next. Mm. And after that, it was all very much you did. Yeah, but I mean, if we're talking about the Doctors themselves... Yeah, that's uh, what I'm talking yeah, about, yeah. with the Doctor too. Okay. I was just going to say a few minutes ago when Simon was talking yeah. about Tennant's Doctor, and I was going to say, do you know what the Paradigm episode for David Tennant was? Voyage of the Damned. Because it's got the companion, who's a nobody, who comes in, gets to be the Doctor's companion, has a tragedy at the end. The story itself is utter bunkum, but there's lots of bangs and flashes and it looks wonderful. And there's a scene in the middle where the Doctor turns around and says, I'm a Time Lord from the planet Gallifrey in the constellation of Kasturbras, mm. and gets to do the show. Yeah, off. So much so that Stephen Moffat... the trailer, obviously. But so much... Well, actually, I think most... This is criticism that's often levelled at the monsters. Fans on forums will say, why are there so many bloody monsters in Doctor Who these days? They're only doing it for the toys. And I'm thinking, hang on. <laughs> this monsters in Doctor Who because it's Doctor Who. I know. Same level, same thing leveled at Star Wars. Actually. And it's the same thing with yeah. that speech. I'm the 900 year old alien who's going to save your ass. Yeah. The reason that speech is there is not for the that. trailer. The reason that speech is there is because Russell T Davis wrote that episode, yeah. and Russell T Davis loves those speeches. Yeah. I, I hate that speech, that bit. But that sums that up really David Tennant's me. Doctor. Yeah, I mean, by the end of it, he's he's full of ego. He's full of pump. He's, I mean, he's lost Rose, and he, he's, he comes, pump. he's you know he's pumped up. He's full of it. And there's Time Lord Victorious business. You know that gets that got a little bit on my nerves towards the end. He was getting all maudlin. But actually, I found that more realistic. You know, the guy's lost his. He thinks he's lost his planet. The Time Lord's creeping on. He's lost the girl of his dreams. Everything's like looking a bit crap for him. He's going to die. You know, <laughs> you're not going to be cheery, are you, for the last few episodes? And. He's had a bit of a joyride as well with, that, great, with that particular yeah. incarnation. So he's been up so. and down and up and down. So he's had he's had to explore it all. But the, the great thing about Matt Smith is that he can explore what David Tennant did over seasons within seconds. He's got that amazing skill of, of you know, David Tennant can whirl around and deliver all these lines. But actually Matt Smith's got a great way of delivering it in an emotional way. And that really gets you. I mean, mm. the time of the Doctor was just, to me, I think it's one of my favourite performances from him. Do I don't... I, I will always connect with things on an emotional level and that episode where you see the Doctor shot at the start of season six. Impossible astronaut. Yeah. It's brilliant, isn't it? Uh, you see his emotional reaction when he realises he's been shot and thinks he's going to regenerate. And you utterly believe in it. I, I, you can slag that series off as much as you like, but I think emotionally that was absolute yeah. dynamite. You know, as a shocker, as an opening shocker, it was, it was like a fantastic yeah. opening. But it wasn't just that. It was the entire... You look at that scene, where it's set, yep. the people that he's with, the fact that it happens at the point of the... And you're, straight away your mind's thinking, oh, crumbs, there's a mystery here we've got to solve. In, you know, we've got 13 weeks to work this out. Yeah, yeah. I didn't uh, immediately think, oh, it was geez, so of course he's not going to die. But I actually sort of thinking... I was on the edge of my seat, mouth open. Shit. Like, what? And <laughs> yeah. tell you, people talk against that because he sets up this big mystery and at the end... The answer to the mystery is quite prosaic. But that's a bit like in an episode of Foil's War, where at the start somebody gets killed, and at the end you find out that somebody killed them. Yeah. That's it's like it needs an answer. If you don't have an answer, 
you know, it's it's the it's always the journey is more interesting than the answer anyway. But yeah. I, I thought the answer was quite good. The only thing I found in that entire series is that he threw so many red herrings in that didn't follow through, like the flesh thing was like this is perfect you could really roll this one as well and really yeah but Matthew Graham wrote that episode and Stephen Moffat only uses stuff in his finale from his own episodes I've said Mm. this many times yeah well you know for Matt Smith we didn't need to see him melt that would have kept the mystery a little bit longer wouldn't it yeah I thought that was the that story there were a few problems in that story but Mm. that could have been different shall we move on yeah Mm. favourite writer hang on a minute Capaldi number one. Yeah, yeah, I said I did the rundown. I'll do it again for anybody who missed it. Fifth place, John Hurt. Fourth, Eccleston. Third, Tennant. Second, Smith. First, Capaldi. Favourite writer of three or more stories. Right. I kept this to anybody. I didn't do two or more stories because a few people have come back and done a second one but haven't gone on. I thought it only counts if you've done three or more because then you are a Doctor Who writer as opposed to somebody who has written for Doctor Who, right? Mm. So anybody who's written three stories or more, and there are only seven of those, but the five we voted, because we're doing top fives here, in fifth place, Gareth Roberts. Mm. Gareth Roberts' stories are fun, but they tend to be a little bit frivolous. I love his works. I've yeah, always they... like Gareth Roberts. I've got a soft spot. I'm glad. I'm glad he writes for the series. I'm absolutely. Way, yeah, I mean, he's perfect Sarah Jane material, isn't he? Because mm. he's like the Doctor Who of the past, but with that fun element to it. Yeah, you know, all of his books are great. Higher Science and all those other ones he's written, which I, I love. Um, you did write those, right? Anyway, but uh, yeah, he, he, they're they're great. I love his I love his writing. I just think they're fun. Lodger was his, wasn't it? And um, what else did we Shakespeare get? Code. Shakespeare Code. Yeah, that could have been a bit better, but it was still pretty Close good. Closing time. Closing time. Planet of the Dead. Unicorn and the, and the Wasp. Caretaker. I love the Caretaker. The Unicorn yeah. and Wasp. Yeah, these are great. They're great, fun, but they don't make much impact. Hmm. I don't care. <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. I'm <laughs> no, saying yeah, this is why he's fifth. As somebody's got to write the stories that. You know, yeah, yeah, it's in safe hands with him, isn't it? I just, I just love his stuff. I think it's great, and it's very funny. Who's your favourite author? Of what Doctor Who? No, of anything. Who's your favourite author? Your favourite writer? Or Um, can't I'll have to think about that. You can't just no, no, no. Just you must know. Okay, a favourite writer. Okay, Ray Bradbury. Right. And that's what I'm saying. You didn't choose somebody who just writes fairly frivolous comedies. You wrote somebody who writes quite serious stuff. I suppose so, yeah. So I'm saying, Gareth Roberts, yeah. He comes in fifth out of seven. He doesn't come in last out of seven. He comes in fifth. We all like him a lot. Mm. There's other people who have dropped off the list, isn't there? Mm. Yeah, but he's not the guy who writes the episodes where you sit down afterwards and think, oh, my God. Yeah, mm. no, I wouldn't put him at number one, number two. I couldn't do that because there were too there many bigger writers there. But, yeah, I'm glad he's in the list because he's, he's just... You only voted him fourth. I know, but I'm glad he's in the list. Again, that's really hard because there were so many good writers in that. But in fourth place, and this will probably surprise listeners, but Chris Chibnall. Fair enough. Mm. But given his two episodes in Series 7... He has the capacity to write bloody stonkers. I think uh, he did 42. That stonkers as a he positive did 42, comment, can yeah. I just but say. But he did The Power of Three and Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. That's it. I think those two were the, were the two. When I, mm. you know, 42 was all right, OK? It was, to me, it was a bit of a... Could have been so much It was better. a bit of a treading water. Could have been so much I do. I do actually like that. I've got a soft spot mm. for that as well, but... I think the only thing that spoils 42 is the imposition of the 42-minute thing on it. Yeah. 
because yeah. you keep getting... Yeah, because I, I, I looked forward to that episode purely because of that. Yeah, and it's... I was itching to see and it. The, and the it... story was already written before, mm. and then they made him stick in all these lines of dialogue, and they made him... And in order to do that, you, it's like what I said earlier in this podcast, and what I always say, everything has to come out of the story, the premise. And that doesn't come out of the story or the premise, so it's an impingement upon it. And so that kind of... But there's a, a lot of really good stuff in that episode. Would you, would you say it's a case of Russell T. Davis going to Chris Chibnall and saying... Want you right, to do this? I want you to do a possession story. Yeah, and a kind of a because a, he kind of does it again in Midnight, doesn't do the, he? But I he... want you to do the rape of an alien planet, please, from a corporation. I, I, I mean, I love that idea. Mm. That's good. It's a, it's a bit of a shame Sunshine came out the same year, really. But mm. um, I preferred Forty Two to Sunshine. I wasn't too smitten with the cast either. No, I forty-two. Yeah, no, it's badly directed. I, I think not all of it's badly directed. Some of the it's, it's Graham, Graham Harper. Graham Harper I think Graham Harper is one of the least consistent directors. He did Planet of the Ood, and that is really shoddy work. Directorial. Yeah. I think it is. And he did Utopia, the second half of which is great, but the first half of which is all over the The place. The second half is action, isn't it? Which he is great at. He's good at action. He's not good with actors. He only gets good performances out of actors who bring the performance with them. If you've got an actor on your set who's not bringing the performance with them but needs it teasing out by the director, he's not the man he did to do it. State, didn't he? Yeah, again, and Which all is those great. yeah, but all those actors were all regulars. Mm. They'd all been doing those performances. They all knew exactly what they were doing, yeah. and they had that script to work from. So mm. they all knew how to get where they were going. He didn't take them there. Mm. Yeah, so forty-two. Well, I didn't think it was directed that bad, but you're right about the actors. I mean, I. Yeah, it's it got the, Anthony Michelle Collins. Michelle Collins, Michelle Collins. Terrible, she can act when she gets a performance teased out of her, yeah. and he didn't. And Anthony, this has always been my bugbear with that episode. Anthony Flanagan's in it, and Anthony Flanagan is an amazing actor, mm. and that is the only time I've ever seen him give a bad performance mm-hmm. in that episode. So he's such a good actor that even though he's a completely unknown name, ITV tried to give him his own series. It flopped, but I don't think that was necessarily his fault. It flopped because I don't think they really worked out what they wanted to do with it, but they gave him a detective series. Did you talk to Chris Chibnall about 42 when you spoke to him? Yeah. What was his opinion? On 42? Mm. Oh, God, I can't remember. (laughs) Throwing things at me like that. (laughs) (laughs) No, he liked Graham Harper. But then professionals will never bitch about other professionals. But well, he seemed genuine about it. It's that same it. thing, isn't it? it was, you know, like you say about never wanting to make a bad episode. So but he said things it. like, you know, the bit in the airlock where it suddenly goes silent as the mm. the pod is drifting away. He said, you know, Graham Harper's the guy who made that scene as good as it is. And that's fair enough. Yeah, That, that, is, that is a good scene. It is a good scene. Yeah. So, I mean, he is a good director. He wouldn't have him on board otherwise, Graham Harper. But you're right, there are certain things that he just can't do with the actors. Maybe, I mean, it's obviously coming through. But um, di- when we get to Dinosaurs and we get the power of three from, from Chibnall, I, you know, we, we, you remember when we did this and we reported, the re- we reviewed them uh, immediately after seeing them. And they're great. I love them. I think they're both really strong stories. And mm. I hope... To mm. God, that we get more like that coming. 
I don't the amazing thing about them is not just that he's written a great fun episode in Dinosaurs on a, space, on a Spaceship, but a great fun episode that means something and that has great character beats as well, mm. that has mm. a kind of truth mm. at the back of it. Another, and, another Marmite episode, isn't that Dinosaurs? And Power of Three mm. is an astonishing episode. Okay, mm. so the plot's hokey as all hell, but it's Doctor Who, since when has a hokey as all hell plot ever been a problem? I love it. Slow invasion. It's, it's got those lovely idea. time jumps in Power mm. 3, though, isn't it? it but works. the character stuff in that episode, and of course, that's directed by Douglas McKinnon, who I think is the director that people think Graham Harper is, but isn't. <laughs> I think Douglas McKinnon's an amazing director. And he stick Douglas McKinnon with a Chris Chibnall script, you get Power of 3. Stick Graham Harper with a Chris Chibnall script, and you get 42. Mm. So that's why he's number three then. No, he's number four. Number four. Yeah, we're on the. Are we? We're on our on favourite the... writer. We just had a five-minute discussion on Graham <laughs> Bloody Harper. I'm going to be going forever. Third in favourite writer. I mean, with the top two, we know it's going to be the top two are going to be the two showrunners. It's just a case of which way around. Oh, really, I'm surprised actually. So yeah, it had to I be. I didn't think RTD would come in the third, but come on. No, no. so the. Th- this third spot is our favourite of the non-showrunner writers, okay? Toby? Toby Whithouse, yeah. Okay. Which cool. actually kind of surprises me a little bit. Is it That's prophetic? Is it prophetic? No, I don't I think know. so. No. Well, sorry, He's a great... I suppose it could be. He's which, a great writer. Write again? Well, he wrote School Reunion, Vampires of Venice, The God Complex, and the Western, uh, Town Called Mercy. And he's also yeah. got a two-parter coming up in Series 9. Okay. Mm. I, I think he's a really good writer, but I think his Doctor Who stuff, I think his writing is better elsewhere. I think his Doctor Who stuff has mostly been really solid, but not, say for instance, a writer like Mark Gatiss will disappoint us most of the time, but then with something like um, the Crimson, Crimson Horror, Horror yeah. all of a sudden it's inspiration time and it, Sets your head on fire. But you know, the, I think that things where the, the link between the three good episodes just talked about there Crimson Horror, Dinosaurs, and Spaceship, Tangle Mercy, is the director. Saul Metzton. He just seems to bring out the scripts really, really well. And, I, and it's the fact that he, for the Western, for instance, he's obviously emulating Westerns, so there's a lot of oblique angles and all this sort of stuff. But I just think what he's done with it brings and lifts it up higher. So I don't. I didn't necessarily. The, the script was thing. amazing. Yeah, I didn't think the script was completely. Well, brilliant. that's what I'm saying about the script. But the God Complex was very interesting and different, and mm. and also that had a really good director on it. His it, name escapes me, but yeah, I can't remember either. But you're right. Yeah. Um, no, I think Toby's. But that was quite. A, that was quite I think Toby Whithouse's Doctor Who is very, very good, but solid. But I wouldn't have solid, quite so but, high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is. I'm not on a par with Graham. Graham? Sorry. Uh, <laughs> the other one. Gareth, sorry. Gareth Roberts. Yeah. yeah He's like yeah. the more profound side of that coin. Mm. Gareth Roberts writes solid, funny episodes, and Toby Whithouse writes solid, profound episodes. Mm. Yeah. Because all of his episodes are quite. Which is probably why Toby probably, probably resonates a little bit more. Maybe why he's slightly higher in that. But also, I think if you look at the 
the writers who haven't been showrunners. And this is why this conversation about who's going to replace Stephen Moffat goes on, because there isn't an obvious candidate. Whereas when Russell T. Davis was the showrunner, there was, and it was Stephen Moffat. Mm. And, uh, you know, we're five years now into Stephen Moffat, and it looks like he's going nowhere. Is that because he doesn't want to go anywhere, or because the BBC have got nobody to replace him with, and they're keeping him on? Because mm. I think there's a, you know, I think either of those things are just as likely to be true at this point. Because mm. he must have had other offers. He must have other things he wants to do with his career. Absolutely. So, top two then, well, Simon said it really. Russell T. Davis was second and Stephen Moffat was first, and that's hardly a surprise given the way we talk about Stephen Moffat on this podcast. Mm. Did I vote Stephen up top? No. Stephen, you see your best mate. Steve. Old Stevie boy. <laughs> no, you were <laughs> Mr. the Moffat only one. to you. You were the only one who voted Davis above Stephen Moffat. Of course. <laughs> No, I love them both. It's ridiculous. I'll be bang on. You know, Stephen Moffat was a weird thing, wasn't it? Because for, for for the first season, I think when you go back to the podcast, you know, I, I don't know about Simon, but I was a bit confused. I wasn't quite sure whether this was working. I wasn't that big a fan of Stephen Moffat. I think I was possibly riding along the crest of a wave of every other fan. It was kind of going, oh, it's not as good as we thought it was going to be. It's over confusing. It's over complicated. And then after doing the podcast for God knows how long, and really getting to the nitty gritty of breaking it down, and you know, you know, obviously, Joe, you see patterns in things and and working it all out for us, and being the most intellectual person on this podcast, it's really helped. Thank you very much. But actually, the uh... patronising bastard. <laughs> <laughs> but no, actually, no. We've we've really discussed it in depth. It, you can see the genius behind Moffat. So I I completely I really wrestled with this. Because I was going, ah, oh, it's got to be Stephen. I said, well, yeah, but Russell T. Davies brought the entire series back. And he, if it wasn't for his absolute genius, we wouldn't have it now. So I, in a way, I'm just doffing my cap uh, to RTD. Simply because not only is he a great writer, and I enjoy, like you said earlier, all of his episodes. And they're all great fun, and they're all good, wonderfully dialogued pieces of, you know, scripting. Great characters like Jackie and all these people... And the fact is, he brought the series back as well, so that shouldn't really affect the the, the, the answer there, but that's why I put him up to Hey, the way I look at it is, what's the worst episode in Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who? And it's way better than the worst episode in Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who. What's the best episode in Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who? It's by Stephen Moffat. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but under RTD's reign. Yeah, but we were asking who was the best writer, not who was the best showrunner. True, yes, don't do that. Um. <laughs> so, the difference between Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat, I think, is this. Russell T. Davis writes, has great ideas, great characters, and great stories from a drama point of view. The places that he takes those characters and the things that he does with those characters... But he doesn't understand science fiction and he can't tie all those things together. His stories are great stories, but they're not great Doctor Who stories. He always has a deus ex machina at the end, like um, Donna with the hand turning into the Time Lord whatever. It's a deus ex machina to solve the problem at the end of the story because he can't work out how to do it in a science fiction way that's properly seeded throughout and that comes out of the logic of the storytelling as opposed to the logic of the character. I don't think they're... I've said this before. I don't think they're actually deus ex machina. 
because the character arc follows through when Rose turns into Bad mm. Wolf. That follows through for the character. That's a logical place for the character to go, but it's not a logical place for the science it's to go. It's funny that hand thing, isn't it? Because uh, did when he was when he sort of got the the thing in the TARDIS and it's sitting there at the side. It's, it's like he's literally thought that'll come in useful at some point. Yeah, yeah. And the Russell T Davis is really good at writing drama. Yeah. So he knows where to take the characters. But because he writes drama rather than something else, it's the technical stuff that kind of eludes him. Where Stephen Moffat comes out of comedy, and Lee, you'll know the truth of this, probably more than anybody in this room, with comedy, you have to tie the idea into the character and tie them up at the end. So Stephen Moffat has great ideas and great characters and great drama as well, but he ties them all together much better at the end. Hmm. So that a Stephen Moffat story will end with both the character and the plot in a logical place. Yeah. And I think that's the difference between the two writers. And, uh, you know, I, I said it right at the beginning, I found it quite tough to choose between the two. And even now, I'm still thinking, well, maybe Stephen, you know, in my mind, is actually the, the better writer as opposed to, um, you know, an over-the-top bonkers conceptionalist. Better writer of Doctor Who, of Doctor though Who. it has to yeah. be said. Yeah. Because if you look at their stuff outside of Doctor Who, Russell T. Davis is probably wins hands down. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Although, to be oh, fair, oh, given oh. what Stephen Moffat's been doing since he's been doing, doing Doctor Who, I think he's learned a lot from Doctor Who. Mm. And Jekyll and Sherlock are much better than things like Joking Apart. Oh, the press gang was brilliant. So we move on to favourite story. Okay. Since this podcast is going to be... I, you know, when we sat down, I thought this would be an hour. We'll do the emails. Yeah, right. We'll yeah. just run down these categories, <laughs> and then we'll do another email at the end, and we'll be gone. Okay, favourite story is an impossible task as well. There's so many good ones out there. That's well... It'll be really interesting. It will be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> with favourite story, instead of doing the top five like I had with the other categories, because there were so many stories to choose from, the way the voting went, that wouldn't have worked. So instead, I've got four stories, and they're all stories that at least two of us nominated. Okay. So this is to try and demonstrate a consensus between the four people on the podcast, including Mark, because we had Mark's votes. So there were two stories that got nominated by two people and two stories that got nominated by three of us. And actually, I think one of those would have got nominated by four of us if that person could make up their mind a little better. So... (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe that would be. Yeah. What are you talking about? You'll find out when I get to it. (laughs) So, first, the two stories that got nominated by two of us... Ah, uh, blink. No, dinosaurs on a spaceship. Oh, really? Oh, listen. God, I thought that'd be higher. No, you and Lee both nominated dinosaurs on a spaceship, okay. but Mark and I didn't. Grumpy bastards. No, not grumpy. <laughs> I'm looking around. I'm dinosaurs around. on the spaceship's brilliant. Yeah. But if you look back over the last ten years of Doctor Who, there have been a lot of brilliant stories, yeah. and there yeah. are some stories that are utterly, utterly wonderful that Do you didn't what, get nominated though, by any of I us. I think probably the other ones I nominated are probably quite heavy, and Dinosaurs isn't. Although, it, you know, obviously it does have quite a strong message in there, but it was such a freaking ride. That's twice I've said freaking. It was, wasn't it? Actually, it's four times, because you repeated it the first time, and you've yeah. just repeated it again okay. now. And I remember the confusion of us all reading everybody's comments when it first came out. Uh, about you know, oh this is awful it's the worst bloody thing I've ever seen what the hell is this all about and I was 
we were utterly confused because I think we all nominated, we all gave it a really high score, nines, tens. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we <coughs> utterly loved it. <laughs> mm. So it was, it was really I, interesting coming out the other side. It was a learning just... thing in that uh, I learnt, or it, it was, it was kind of proved to me that sometimes when people do have those polar opposite reactions, that it means that something special is going on. Yeah. I do think you know some of these Marmite stories. There's got to be something special going on for to have that polar of reaction to it. Sure. Speaking of which, not one of us nominated Love and Monsters, and yet we all loved it, didn't I we? Know, how, yeah. How bizarre that is. Too. Old. Apart from Mark, I think. It was too. If old. I remember rightly. Didn't oh, okay. Like yeah. I think I had too many above it. Yeah. I, that's I, what I'm I saying. adore Love and Monsters. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? And listen. Yeah. I listen. I think in ten years' time that story will be revered. I think I nominated Listen. Yeah, I think you did. Um, let's have a look. Yes, you and me were the two nominated Listen. Mm. I was just outside of that with that one. I don't even know why. Well, because your list is the first five stories that popped into your head rather than the five <laughs> you actually liked the most. I was trying to work out how I was going to pick these, and again, I had to go on that emotional response, I think. Right, the two stories that got three nominations amongst the five of us are Blink. Yeah. Which I think is absolutely fair enough because I don't think anybody would disagree with Blink. But the one that I thought might get four nominations and one person on this podcast didn't nominate it, even though you've just mentioned it a few minutes ago, was Day of the Doctor. It's on my list. Uh, your list is... Oh, yeah, so it is. Oh, no, Mark didn't. Yeah. What the on. hell is going on with Mark? On air apology, please. <laughs> uh, I'm so well, we'll have a so sorry. Day of the Patronizing Doctor. Bastard. <laughs> we'll have a loving about Day of the Doctor. I mean, the more I watch it, the better it gets. But do you know what Switch I was just saying? Cool. You know what I was just saying about Stephen Moffat and Russell T. Davis and the difference? Stephen Moffat could have written Day of the Doctor because the story logic and the character logic are flawless in that story. I know, though. It's just... It's just... It's like a three D maze, and and but everything links up. It's just completely the same as Listen. In fact, yeah, everything yeah. pays off, and nothing is set up mm. that doesn't have a payoff. The, the direction and those close ups on the Doctor towards the start, you know, where you get the the shot of half his face, and then it cuts to the mm. War Doctor's face. Beautiful. It's just gorgeous. I would qualify what I've just said. Mm. I said nothing that's set up doesn't pay off, and people are going to be sitting there and thinking, well, the Zygon story doesn't pay off. But the Zygon story does pay off because the Zygon story is what solves the Gallifrey story. Mm. That's the payoff of that. Everything in there made sense, but it took four watches for me to get it. Totally. Well, the thing is, when we first saw it, we were at your wedding and we all dropped. You really struggle with these senders, don't you? <laughs> I'm not stupid, mate. Um, <laughs> All evidence to the contrary. Emmerdale, nightmare. Can't get that at all. Um, yeah, so no, the, we watched it at your wedding, so we were half cut, and it was like, and I went, oh yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's all right. And I came away a bit nonplussed, I think. I liked it, but it's like, oh, it's all right. and then the second time I watched it with my son properly, um, I was like, okay, this is uh, this is pretty good. And you were saying, oh, it's the best thing ever. It's the best Doctor Who episode ever. And I think. Come on, Simon. Talons of Wind Chiang. You know, how can you possibly say it's the best thing ever? Third time watching it on my own. I remember watching it about two o'clock in the morning. Um, and 
really getting into it. I had to watch it because we were doing seasons of war stories. So we watched it. I thought, oh, yeah, I'm I'm starting to see this now. This, you know, the, the David Tennant thing and the Matt Smith thing. I can, but the, you know, the War Doctor thing's really good. So I was focusing on that. Last time I watched it was about two weeks ago. From start to finish, I I was thinking I, I've really got to actually properly look at this and see how clever it, it is because everybody's saying this is like the best thing. Sat and watched it, and I was trying to pick holes in any of the <laughs> any of anything that Stephen Moffat had written throughout that episode. It's like you say, it's flawless. It's like a diamond. Unbelievable. The more I watch it, as you say something, the better it gets. Mm. Absolutely phenomenal. It, blew, try... it took four views, but that fourth view blew me away. And I thought, got it. I tried to avoid that word got clever it. because it's you know, it's a word that he's kind of tainted with, isn't it? That he's that? trying to be clever all the time. But it but I mean essentially that is what his stories are constructed. They are it's the way that fine tuned so many things up over fifty one or fifty years of Doctor Who. Mm. It's the way that, and you know, having the Knight of the Doctor was a lovely little treat that was beautifully done, leading into Day of the Doctors. It was, it was, it was just mm, perfect. And I, I, would, I never thought I'd put it in my top five, but after that last viewing, it reached it right there and then. It's um, I don't think I think some people, and possibly you, with your first view, expected the anniversary story to be frivolous. Just that, yeah, yeah, exactly. a party. Exactly, yeah. and it yeah. wasn't. It was a proper episode. In fact, it was, it was a movie. Really. It's a movie, and the great thing about this is that he included all of Doctor, all the Doctors, and even though part of me was thinking, oh, you know, I can't see William Hartnell flying around doing all this stuff with all the other. Of course, that's completely explained with the memory loss and all these. You know, great. You throw it in there, and of course, it's only it's only a, a line on a page, explaining it away. But why not? It's Doctor Who. We can do this. You know, uh, I'm not going to remember this, am I, when I go into my TARDIS? No, you're not. Oh, you might as well tell me how my, my life turns out. Well, it doesn't turn out too well. And all these sort of things, really, really good. <laughs> and even throwing the caretaker at the end, you know, the curator rather. Um, originally, I thought, this is this is a step too far. We don't need Tom Baker in here as a future incarnation of the Doctor. Why do we need this? Ah. Uh, Totally, that totally felt, wrong. I, I cried watching that. That felt like week. the most beautiful science fiction or maybe science fantasy thing I've seen in Doctor Who was that appearance of a future Doctor like that. Mm. In as much as it was looking that far ahead, yeah. As far as the show's future, that that was real, and it, it amazes me that that everyone thought that was everyone I've spoken to thought that was amazing. And yet, it's kind of almost as bad as these people who, who complain about rewriting the history and saying, oh, you're touching old history. Well, he's doing more than that. He's, he's saying, we're looking right ahead, saying that the Doctor's going to live that long and he's going to have all these lives. Yeah. And, and But time can be rewritten, so if he dies, then everything gets changed. Yeah, in the same so, way as the past can be changed. So, And the fact that he says that you might want to revisit a few old ones, or old ones... So old faces. Old faces, old faces, that's it. Yeah. With a, you know, plural, so you never know. But um, the fact is that the Doctor might even be able to choose his appearance in the future. Well, at the moment, he has, he's never had a, a choice. He's always just turned up whatever he's got. Mm. That's, that's just another interesting idea. You know, oh, somewhere in the future, 
Ideas, can, ideas, ideas, you ideas. You can just come back and go, do you know what, it's I quite just... liked with that fourth incarnation. I, I think I'll go back. It doesn't even have to be a conscious choice. It could be just the regeneration energy that says, hey, I liked being Paul McGann, let's be Paul McGann again. Yeah, great idea, isn't it? Paul McGann again. He's Irish. <laughs> He's got hairs on his chinny, chin, chin. <laughs> anyway, there the doctor. Wow. Amazing. I... I think it's probably the best Doctor Who story there's ever been. I think that vote Thank in Doctor Who magazine was right. Okay, let's move on to favourite series, otherwise Agreed. we're just never going to get through this. Uh, this was voted for by our listeners. We included the anniversary programming, which is Time of the Doctor, Adventure in Space and Time and Day of the Doctor, and um, Night of the Doctor, That basically the sort of end of 2013 stuff as a choice and we included the David Tennant specials as a choice so this is eight series and two segments of special stuff and the bit that came in 10th with not much more than half the votes of the one that came in ninth was the David Tennant specials really? which everybody hated and in fact I've got quotes on just about everything except that wow. from you know little bullet quotes from people from their emails because people wrote in a lot of stuff and I just included a few bullet points here mm, from what mm. people have said. Nobody really liked the tenant specials. I don't think they were crap. I just don't think... Awesome Mars think was a highlight for high, me. Awesome Mars was exceptional, I thought. So yeah. It was great. I the last 15 it. minutes was awful. A- apart from the last 15 minutes. But um, I also like the end of time when I put on a sucker like that. It's fun. I can watch and there isn't a single episode of Doctor Who that's been broadcast in the last 10 years that I can't watch and enjoy. Mm. And I but, can watch... but unlike Stephen Moffat's Day of the Doctor and all the other ones he does, obviously Russell T Davis threw in all these things, but didn't really tie it up the same way. So it's, no. there's a lot of stuff that's just flying off, going, well, this hasn't been explained, that hasn't been explained, that's not... And as yeah. we were expecting Stephen Moffat to pick it up, and he didn't. And he's just kind of gone off doing his own thing. So we've still got, you know, who is that lady with the hands over her eyes and all these sort of little bits and pieces. Um, yeah. Well, you might have been expecting that, but none of us were. Hey. <coughs> He'll be in this season. Okay. <laughs> of the series that came in ninth... Richard Hogarth says, A series on first watch I really wasn't sure of, but when I want to watch some Doctor Who, I find myself digging through these. And Ian Martin said, It's like an album made up of B-sides. <clears throat> which okay. which season, I love some albums made of B-sides. Season 5? Pet Shop Boys Alternatives is great. Mm. I know. <laughs> B-sides can be really interesting and yeah, really fun, yeah. and they can reflect some great things, but there's a reason they're on the B-side, generally. Anyway, they were talking about Series 7. Oh, okay. Sorry, who was talking about this? These two quotes I've just read. Yeah, what? But what just, just, it what, came in nine. Series 7 All the came... listeners of the Blue Box podcast voted it no, down that low. The vo- listeners have voted for it. Yeah. And I've taken a few of the quotes, because we had masses and right. masses of okay. quotes. I've taken a few as bullet points to guide us through the reasons why people made the choices. <sighs> hmm. And the point is, Series 7 came in ninth, but even though it came in ninth, Richard Hogarth says, when I want to watch some Doctor Who, I often find myself digging through Series 7. The point is, we all love all of the last ten years of Doctor Who. We just love some of it more than the rest of Mm, it. And Series 7, which I think there are some stellar episodes in Series 7, but 
also in series. If you go through series seven and plot how many ten out of ten stories there are, right? If you're gonna look at any of the other series and look at what the the sort of <clears throat> what's the word I'm looking for? Not shibboleth or apex, but if you're gonna look at any other series of Doctor Who and how many greats there are, and even the bad series have got some greats. And even the specials have got like Waters of Mars, right? Mm. Is there anything in Series 7 that reaches those heights? And perhaps the two Cribs Chibnall stories in the first half, mm. but in the second half there are no sort of 10 out of 10 or even 9 out of 10 episodes, really. I mean, the best thing in the second half of Series 7 is probably oh, the Crimson right. Horror. Name of the Doctor, I enjoy as well. Name of the, yeah, Name of the Doctor's good, but it's not one of the all-time greats, right? I don't think oh, so. I don't know. I, I, I loved it. I loved it, yeah. Mm. Crimson Horror I loved as well. Um, Bells of St. John was a seven-ish, wasn't it? Winds of Town wasn't, wasn't as bad as everybody thought. It's just that last segment that ruined it. Yeah, but that's it. It wasn't yeah, as bad as everybody thought, but it's not one of the great. What were the other ones in there? Do you know that comment about it being uh, an armor B-side? So I'll, I'll go along with that. That's fine. Yeah, um, that's why I included it in the bullet points because yeah. I thought it was a good point. It's a, it's a, it's a good explanation of it, and it feels I adore like some some B sides have become favourite over the A sides. So because series they, seven feels like an album made up of really good B sides, but there's a reason they're not the A sides. Yeah. And also, possibly, it doesn't construct an album as such. It's yeah, it's it feels like yeah, well, to mm. me, it feels like around about six or seven singles with A sides and B sides. So I, I don't agree with that at all. But that's my own personal choice. I think I voted quite high. It's one of my favourites. Well, you voted it fourth. Yeah. But then you put the anniversary programming last, which is Day of the Doctor and Time of the Doctor the and Night of the Doctor. No. Okay, I'll I just... explain that later. <laughs> okay, well, when we get there. Okay, the one that came in eighth then was Series 2, which I think a lot of people... I think... I'm trying to understand the reasons why the voting's gone the way it has, as opposed to just giving my personal opinion on it. Yeah. I think the point with Series 2 is, it feels like Series 3 consolidates what Russell T. Davis is doing, and Series 1 opens the box on what Russell mm -hmm. T. Davis is mm -hmm. doing. And Series 2 feels a bit like it's not got the ambition to go as far as something like Human Nature just yet, so it doesn't move it on enough from Series 1. No, it's enjoying it. It's enjoying itself. Season two, isn't it? Rather apart than stretching itself. Apart from the last episode, which was the most emotionally brilliant episode up to that point, which I thought. But was the plays on all the same emotions as you had yeah, in Bad Wolf yeah, yeah. in the scene in the fish and chip shop, for example. It still works though. It does still work, but what I'm saying is, it's not stretching any boundaries. No. It's, it's making it what it will be for the next couple of years. I'll tell you the it's real difference between Series 2 and Series 3. In Series 3, Russell T. Davis, through Paul Cornell, but Russell T. Davis, takes Martha into 1913 mm. and says, right, or is it 1913? It is 1913, isn't it? Mm. And says, right, we will take a black character into 1913 and we will address that. Mm. In Series 2... He has the opportunity to take Mickey into 1950s England and he leaves him behind on a parallel world so he doesn't have to bother. Yeah, that, that was a shame. That would have been great, wouldn't it? That's the point. It's not brave enough to start stretching mm. the boundaries yet, Series mm. 2. It's great stories. There's a lot of great stories in mm. Series 2. Mm. 
but it's not one of those ones that stretches the boundaries and it's the ones that stretch the boundaries that you tend to vote further up, right? In seventh place out of the ten, series four. Well, I thought that would have been higher. It's Donna Noble's great, right? Mm. Although I have to say, I think a shouty acting is still a bit shouty acting in throughout series four. But mm. Donna Noble's a great character, but the stories don't go anywhere or do anything. They just mm. repeat mm. all the things that Russell T. Davis had yeah, already could done. Have been, yeah, there could have been a lot of stronger episodes in there, actually. But I think what she did with it was great. Um, and I did like the Dr. Donna thing. <clears throat> You know, and the ending was fantastic. Two great episodes at the end. Yeah. But actually... But you know what? They're all great, aren't they? So this is just too hard to... I don't... You know... <laughs> what can you say? They're all bloody great. Get to the... Cut to the chase. What was number one? Sixth place. Series three. So that is all the three David Tennant series of coming eighth, seventh and sixth. Oh. <laughs> what are they, how old are these people voting for this? What are these... They're not kids. They're not kids. That's the point. I love my listeners, really. <laughs> David, your listeners. You yeah, love your listeners. Listener, yeah. I don't love yours. We now are listeners. <laughs> <clears throat> David Tennant appeals to the teenagers, Lee. It's I'm, not about David Tennant, I though. It's about teenager. the stories of those three David Tennant series. And I think they all suffer from this. I think the reason why they've landed up smack bang together towards the bottom of this poll is because they all do exactly the same thing, those three series. So it's difficult to choose between them. Mm. And of the three, series three is the one with human nature and blink in it. I, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. If, if you give me an episode and I have to think what series it is, I do get confused between those to which one I have to really think about which, which series they're in. And usually I need to navigate by the companion. Yeah, I was going to say. Well, it just shows a consistency of tone, that's all. Hmm. Which is quite nice, but you're right, it doesn't take any risks. That's Apart the point, from though. individual episodes and, and uh, you know, the climaxes at the end. Uh, I don't know. I just what's funny, I, I, about would, I would have found maybe one of those a bit higher. It's going to be this is going to be quite obvious now, isn't it? Where, where this is going, do you think so? Possibly, I think there are a few surprises in store. All right, let's go. Uh, right, we're in the top five now, we're in the top five. And number five, series six, the one that everybody hates, has landed up above four of the five Russell T. Davis choices. How funny. Yeah. Isn't that astonishing? Because series six is the one that gets the most moans of any of the series of the last ten years. And yet, actually, when you put it down to the vote, it turns out more people like it than don't. They complain less about it now they see it as a complete entity. Yeah. Also, plus... Well, I was just saying about Series 3, that's a series that does exactly the same as Series 4 and Series 2, but it's got human nature and blink in it. You could say about Series 6, people don't necessarily like Series 6, but that's the series that's got The Impossible Astronaut and The Doctor's Wife and Let's Kill Hitler and The God Complex and uh, The Girl Who Waited in it. It's like, (laughs) oh, there are some damn good stories in Series 6. So even if you don't like The Ark... You can't ignore the content. Mm. In fourth place, then, Series 5. Which... I wouldn't have put that there. Well, that's the opposite of Series 6. Everybody seems to like Series 5, so I'm surprised it didn't end up higher. But those two have ended up so close together, Series 6 and Series... Most... If you were to go on the forums, Mm. the actual forums, as opposed to just 
the phonic screwdriver page on Facebook, Lee. Yeah. If you were to go on the actual forums, <laughs> you would find that, generally speaking, almost everybody loves Series 5 and hates Series 6. And yet I think of Series 5 as the warm-up for Series 6. He's, yeah. still, he's just cooking, he's still cooking, he says it in the first episode. This isn't about the Doctor, this is about the stories. They're still cooking, to me, in Series 5. Well... What a, name me some absolute top billing brilliant. Jameson and the Doctor. Yeah, but that was written by somebody quite special. What, what about the Eleventh um, Hour? Yeah, I love it, but Time of Angels. Yeah, it's okay. It's good. No, they're the good. Big Eleventh Hour is, no, is for me the oh, best think, debut ever. I think yeah, 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 the best debut is astonishing. Which one? The Big Bang, the two-part finale in yeah. series five. Maybe I need to rewatch that after watching Dare the Doctor. And, uh, yeah, I think now you I'm should. Now I'm to Stephen Moffat's Yes, mind. I think you should. It just annoyed me. I think it was the Dimensions in Time moment that really pissed me off. Oh, I've not been going through the comments. Oh, with this podcast long enough already, oh, isn't God, it? let's have the comments. Okay, let's go back. You can't have the listeners having an opinion, surely. <laughs> On Series 2, which ended up 8th, Richard Hogarth said, While the finale is astonishing, the rest is a mixed bag. Gary Davison said, It ushered in the modern golden age we're still enjoying. The closing scenes of Doomsday are still hard to beat. And Chris Vorjak said, A bit of a Marmite series for me, in which I mostly either love or hate the stories, but there are a lot I do love. Mm. On series four, Gary Davison said, The best modern Doctor companion pairing, both Tennant and Tate, are utterly, utterly superb. The finale did what every kid does, gets all the toys out and plays with everything at once. Yeah, yeah. Loved it. On series three, James Power said, Martha, enough said. I have to agree, I'm sorry. And Chris Forjak says, a rather consistent but not as exciting run of stories overall. On series six, Kieran Hyman says, when your season starts with I'm pregnant or ends in a wedding, let alone both, you know it's going in the skip. (laughs) (laughs) Weird Bean says, until series eight, this felt like the most complete season of Doctor Who. And David Kitchen says, I could write at length about why the Matt Smith era is last, with series six at the absolute bottom, but in the end, it's really just that they don't work for me. Yeah, fair enough. Which sees two out of three are negative comments, and yet still it ends up in the top five. Odd, isn't it? On series five, Gary Davison says, I thought no one could replace David Tennant, but by the time the fish fingers and custard scene had finished, I knew Matt Smith was the Doctor. <laughs> James Power consolidates that by saying, Matt hits the ground running. Right, mm. we're into the top three. Okay, on the series that ended up in third place Lawrence Hallett says the freshness and fun of the earlier seasons is why they rate so highly for me. Christopher Bryant says this was always going to be my top choice and would stand a good chance of coming out on top if I included the earlier 26 seasons as well whereas Ian Martin says very solid, a real gift each week and this would tip you off about which one it is, still pinching myself in truth he says Mm. series one came third. Okay that I'd agree with it being up that high. It's got to be, isn't it? For everything you've said tonight, to be honest. <clears throat> I think it's the... This is going to sound like a funny backhanded compliment, but I think it's the Russell T. Davis series that most resembles one of the Stephen Moffat ones. I think in some ways, Russell T. Davis got it right in his first series and lost it a bit thereafter by kind of repeating himself or taking himself for granted in some ways. Maybe. But in series one, he's making the effort... Because in series one, it's not just the characters who are on a trajectory, but also the science fiction's taking a trajectory as well. The finale, the long game 
feeds into the finale mm. and all sorts of other things throughout about the time war are kind of feeding into mm. what comes later mm. it's telling a story throughout the series whereas later on it's just oh the planets are disappearing oh the bees have left oh something about Torchwood oh something about the Prime Minister it's not a story it's just mentions of something whereas series yeah. one actually tells a story difficult second album syndrome well the, yeah. ba- the bad wolf thing was seemed to be a bit of a late edition didn't it the bad wolf thing itself yeah Yeah. but actually the underlying story about how the doctor and rose get to that game station at the end that's seeded throughout the entire year Mm. in second place richard hoggarth says some of the best moments in the program's history are in these episodes and he is talking about the anniversary programming really well Mm. i mean Time of the Doctor gets a lot of hate, but I think Time of the Doctor is a really lovely episode. Yeah, do you know what? I wish I'd... Because I don't think I voted this very highly because I thought, well, it's not a proper season anyway. Um, But I should have. I... Because... You voted third. Oh, did I? Yeah, same as me. Maybe I was thinking... So which episodes are we talking about for the anniversary series? Well, Night of the Doctor, which is the Margan short. Day of the Doctor and Time of the Doctor. Right. And an, adventure in, <laughs> and an adventure and in that, space and time. There's that, and the other short. Yeah, what was it called? I can't remember it. It's, oh, the last day or something. That's it. Yeah, that yeah. was kind of a little bit forgettable. No, that would have been brilliant if it hadn't have been leaked to the papers that there was a Paul McGann one as well. Hmm. At the time, the Paul McGann short came out. People assumed that their anniversary special was going to contain something about the Time War. But if you weren't watching Mm. reports from the filming and stuff, you didn't know. You just knew it was an anniversary special. And what that, I think it's called The Last Day, does is all of a sudden it's on Gallifrey and all of a sudden the Daleks are here. If the McGann one comes out afterwards, then that sets up the anniversary special brilliantly. But because the McGann one had already confirmed it was going to be the Time War... Mm. The whole point of the last day is lost because you already know the two revelations. Yeah, you're right. It did. Yeah, it did water down the um, anticipation on that one. Yeah, if you didn't know it was going to be Gallifrey, it didn't give anything away, did it? No. No. Except it would have if you didn't know it was Gallifrey and the Daleks. Yeah. It's a good short story. The last day, if you look at it, um, if you were to read it as a script or a story in a book, it just looked. For for such an important moment, it, it was a couple of guys with a green screen. I couldn't, I can't get past the fact that it was just such a small set and a small thing. It, I know it's supposed to be, but it didn't do anything for me. Absolutely nothing. It's fine as it is, but it's just not. But brilliant. it would have if you didn't know the anniversary special was going to be on Gallifrey. Well, I've, I've watched it recently as well, so I'm looking at it in a different way. But yeah, maybe. Um, the the whole point of that Paul is you're supposed thing. to watch it once and get the two surprises: you, Gallifrey um, and the Daleks. Paul McGann was great. That's Night of the Doctor. Is it? Is there any more sort of information on what was going on there? The, the guy, had, what he'd been augmented or something? Yeah, you, th- you get a few uh, interesting hints about the way that these augmented soldiers see and and live, and you know the, the fact about you know it will turn red when you die, and all your information will be uploaded from your brain, so your families can see your life, and you know all this is linked to the idea of having the Matrix obviously mm. being part of that. So I quite like those little things being thrown in there but and you know the, the, they looked great and what they were doing was great and where they were arcadia but it just felt a little bit like oh this is a studio with three guys 
doing a bit of acting or whatever. Didn't I don't know, just didn't know anything for me really. Mm. And I think I've forgotten about the time the top treasure, which is another one of my votes dead. It's another one. I voted it low for a reason, simply because it was. Voted it last because it wasn't a season. I I know it's anniversary program, and you went, oh yeah, we got. But, you know, a season or two is a season or two. It's 13 episodes with a climax. It's got all this stuff going on, progression, arcs, whatever. And what we got was, you know, what you put there is two very good episodes, top episodes, really, a couple of shorts, one very good short, Adventure in Time and Space, Space in Time. Not really bothered too much about that. And The the Last Day. So it it just cannot compete with the weight of all of the other seasons. It's not That's about the weight. The, it was, the vote was supposed to be about how much you enjoyed them. Okay, well it's you know, two fifths I didn't. Whereas probably the ratio for the others are higher. Yeah, one of those fifths is short, right? Do you not like Time of the Doctor? Yeah, I love Time of the Doctor. And Day of the Doctor? Yeah, Well that's two thirds of what we're talking about. Yeah, and that's a higher hit rate than there are in a lot of the other series. Well, I don't know. I, no, okay, anyway, matter, whatever, whatever. Matter. that's why I made I thought about time, probably would put it higher. So that leaves only one thing that can have come first. And James Power just says, Love Capaldi can only get better. And that's it. Series 8 came top. Top Doctor, top series. I don't think that's just because it was the most recent. I think that was because it was the most consistent. Yeah, yeah. Had all the great... Yeah, uh, I agree. It had all the great things that Stephen Moffat does, plus it had all the great things that Russell T. Davis does, plus it was a consistent, as consistently a well-plotted series as Series 1, because even the most well-plotted ones afterwards haven't been as well-plotted throughout. For example, Series 6, which tells the River Song story, most of the episodes in between the Stephen Moffat ones are irrelevant to the uh, River Song story. So, actually, Series 8, almost every single episode, apart from Robot of Bloody Sherwood, has an impact on where that series ends up. So it's the most consistent in every way. And it has... Peter Capaldi and Jenna Coleman in it, who've won our Best Doctor and Best Companion vote. So what can you say? What can we say? Round of applause to Doctor Who for being on it for ten <clears> years. <throat> Don't you think? Yeah. We've had ten years of Doctor Who, guys. Yeah, for it to be uh, a coming up with the strongest series now yeah. is quite an achievement. We are, in old series terms, in the same place as we would be with the Green Death. Oh, okay. Oh, I see, yeah. Mm. The end of the 10th series. That's where we are. <laughs> More, please. <laughs> yeah, three doctors, then. No, no, no. We had the three three doctors, doctors was the end of the ninth year. Of oh, yeah, 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 of course it was. So we had the three doctors and uh, the doctor. Of course. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. worked out well, didn't it? Saved them making two anniversary. Well, in fact, that worked, that's almost exactly where the Three Doctors was in the classic series, isn't it? A year before the anniversary. Yeah. Yes, it works out perfectly. Hmm. Ten years of New Who, then, guys. It's... Well, like I say, there's not a single episode I can't watch for entertainment. Doesn't it make you feel old? <laughs> it does me. It's yeah. Because yeah. it does feel like only yesterday it came back. 
And not only that, all those years when there was no Doctor Who, and you're thinking, will Doctor Who ever come back in my lifetime? And mm. then it does, and you're already thinking, well, I'm middle-aged now. And that was ten years ago. <laughs> I know. No, ten years, and I still haven't got all the DVDs. That's ridiculous. It's, the great thing about Doctor Who, isn't it, that it's just consistent. It's always there. It's always coming back. But it feels like it is. You know, your life can go up and down. I don't know about you guys, but my life's been up and down for the last ten years. But that consistency is always. Don't been say my, things like that my, when Sharak Jizz is my, listening. My nerdy and, and my nerdy love for Doctor Who has been consistent. Oh, I love it. Big kids, eh? Dear, ten, ten years of Doctor Who toys being back in the shops mm, and things like that, and books and things. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I know there were the books in between, but these are books that tie in with what's going on on the telly. Yeah, some good product. It's been really good. ten years of a kid's Doctor Who comic as well. Yeah, yeah. Doctor Who Adventures has been going for ten years, has which it really? you know, to, to give it, you know, the t- the kids' TV series kind of went by the wayside. Mm. Basically went with Russell T Davis, didn't they? But um, that comic has kept going. So and they trial run congratulations it. Congratulations to them. Run it. They trial ran it. Well, they trialed it. Trialed it. Thank you. Down here, didn't they? Do you remember? Well, the comic the Doctor Who Adventures. Doctor Who Adventures, wasn't it? That they no, no, no. no it, was it, was it was the, the cards. cards. Sorry, yeah. the cards. Yeah, the cards. That's right. Oh, well, battles in time. Battles in time. Mm. Yeah. So down in the West Country, then they tried it first. So we've got some of those old rare cards, the first, almost like proof run. Yeah, uh, the ones that say something like 13 out of 87 instead of 13 out of 250. Yeah. Yeah, we do. <laughs> right, we've got one more email. Should we do one more email? And Because we have been going for a long time. Dear Blue Boxers, I enjoyed your last podcast, which was much more like they used to be as you actually talked about Doctor Who again. This time it was the final front ears, which was appropriate as Mr. Spot has just died, so this was a tribute to him. I think he had the best ears ever, and it makes me very sad that he doesn't have them anymore. In fourth place was Verily Lambert and Butler, which is why JR talked about a film called American Goat Story, because it had a gruffy Billy Fluffnell in it. Haha, <laughs> I was just kidding there. Anyway, this was from a time when everyone was in black and white, which ended when Michael Johnson and Paul McCaffrey sang a song and made everyone go into colour. The girls in this ear were okay, but not as nice as later on, so I wouldn't put it as high as that. Simon was saying about Han Solo crashing a plane and hurting his Wookiee. I hurt my Wookiee once and it hurt a lot, so I hope Han Solo gets better soon. I liked his brother Napoleon in his programme with David McTalcom from Sapphire and Steel as well as his uncle. JR talked about stories which rubbed off on each other. I like rubbing off on some people, but a judge told me I had to stop it or it would make me work behind a bar. In third place was Stephen Mophead, who is very up-to-date and his ears are full of nice girls. I like Amy, who has very long legs, and River, who is wet, which always makes me happy. My favourite, though, is Clara, who is coming back this year, which makes me very happy. I hope she wears Leela's costume this year. (laughs) (coughs) Simon talked a lot about his bath time, which is probably because he was thinking about Clara. I also think about her in the bath a lot and sometimes in the shower. I am smiling a lot now thinking about it. (laughs) In second place was Barry Humphreys and Terence Dickhead's ears. Which was probably all because of Joe Grant, who kept flashing her panties. My favourite story of hers is Plant of the Daleks, or sadly, although sadly the best episode is missing from this one. It is the episode where Joe's clothes become invisible and she makes friends with a Dalek. <laughs> I haven't seen the episode, but I have several pictures from it on my wall. <laughs> the Dalek has his plunger up and Joe looks happy. I wish I was that Dalek. 
You also talked about this new show called Blank about blankets called Game of Throws. I saw one of the episodes the other day, and there's some girls with all their clothes off, so I will watch the rest of them as it made me happy. After talking about the Pinchcliffe Grand Prix, which won the competition mainly because of Snidely Whiplash and Sonny Duckworth, you talked about one of my favourite shows, Buffety the Umpire Shaver, which had lots of very nice girls in it. (laughs) My favourite was Cornelius, who was almost as pretty as Clara. Buffety was very nice too, and had the hots for this dead man called Angle. She needs to watch that, because I got into trouble for something very similar a long time ago. Anyway, JR said it was solid. Mine was solid too when I watched Buffety, so I understand. (laughs) I'm still laughing about Talcum. (laughs) (laughs) JR also spoke about Sin City, which used to be a show with Michael J. Fokker and then became a black and white film, which JR said didn't make his head go bang. Sin City had Jessica Abler, who used to make stereos, and Cara Googly in it, who definitely made my head go bang and hurt my hand a lot as well. (laughs) Another film you talked about was The Avengers Assemble, when Jon Steele meets up with Amy P, an honest black lady, and Joanna Lovely, and they go to Garth Brooks' house, and he shakes his hand at them and makes coffee. (laughs) I wish uh, I would shake my hand at those three as well, as they were all very nice. (laughs) It's a dog scratching at the door. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Something's he wants to get away from Sharak Jez. Something's um, upsetting him. Yeah. He probably wants to go to bed. Finally, you talked about Wes Anderson's films, which is which I liked, especially Barbed Wire, where she wore very little, and what it was was all PVC. PCV. PVC. And the one on the boat, where she was very naughty with Tommy Lee Jones, which made him join the men in black. Simon said he liked Des Lynam films too, which were all about sport and moustaches, which probably means Russian shot putters. I prefer Anna Corny Clover, who likes playing with balls and always wore nice white panties and grunted a lot. Your friend, Sharak. Cheers. We do need a lady version of this bloke. A lady version of this bloke? I presume it's a bloke. <laughs> yes, it's a bloke. Your dog's freaking out. Mm. Right, we better get to bed then. Okay, next time, these two won't be here, because hopefully next time it'll be Friends Part 2. Oh, uh, whatever. But until then, I was JR. I was Lee. And I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. Uh-huh.